We should have like, you know, people right off the start. Here we go. Dave, what's going on, Patricia? So, yeah. it's gonna be a fun show tonight, you guys. I want you guys to keep the conversation going with y'all. Um, we will take questions. We already have questions for Scotty prepared, but we will be taking other ones. Hello, Stephanie. What's going on, Michael? What's going on, Caitlin? Laura. All right, good. In this room loaded up within a minute. I love it. And for all the thousands that watch without saying anything. Anyone who's on YouTube, make sure to give us a thing. Oh, see one up there. Hello, hello. Cool. Great. <clears throat> Trying to stay cool in this 100-degree weather, but when you're hanging out with people like Scotty, it keeps you cool. So definitely. Yeah. <clears throat> We're going to start it in about 45, less than that 30-second show. I'll bring Scotty on after I do introductions. Canada in the house. No one wants to say your name, my man. <laughs> what's up, Dwayne? Maybe that's what we should do when we do what's up, Doc, as well. What's up, Doc? Cool is the other side of the pillow, Marilyn. Thank you. What up, Gilbert? What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Dr. Funk Podcast. Thank you guys for tuning in live. For those people that are watching at a later date, thank you either for watching it on Stitcher, on iTunes, Pod FM. Appreciate it. You can always donate. We'll have something done for that later, but let's get right into it because we're going to have a fun, fun, fun episode with Scotty Baldwin, the sound engineer for Prince for various years. For this one, we're going to be getting into the One Night Alone tour, and they just released it on vinyl, the package, One Night Alone Live, and it ain't over on vinyl as well, that we have right here with something falling out of it, and of course, the box set. Um, Scotty's also done sound for Lady Gaga and various others, as with the revolution right now. I'm going to bring him in, show your love for the one and only Scotty Baldwin. Hey. What's going on, Scotty? I have, a, I have a feeling that I'm missing out by not being on Facebook because the whole world is connected by Facebook right now, right? Well, this has all our Facebook comments in here. Uh-huh. So we have Facebook and YouTube all at the same time. <laughs> so. Well, hello to everyone. I'm yes. glad to be here. I love Doc. Love having you, man. And I'm glad that this project is finally out. It may not mm -hmm. be remastered, but for it to be back in print and going through things. And to me, you know, and I've said this before, the One Night Alone tour was such an important tour when it came to Prince's quote unquote comeback for musicology and setting stuff up, especially with this band, you know, and I'm sure you feel the same way about it as well, you know? Well, he, you know, Prince was 
had a Prince had a great ability to put the car in whatever gear he wanted to to be in. He had a lot. He always had a lot, and he could leave as much on the table as he needed to, and then just raise his game a little bit more. And he he never gave you everything at once. He would he would give it out in doses. He was just that savvy of performer and um, and an artist in the way he approached his career. So um, this the way he wanted to go with this tour was smaller in in um, uh, venues like uh, theaters and be intimate, and he wanted that connection with the fans. I was excited about it because from our very first conceptual talks about the, the show, he wanted every, he kept mentioning that he wanted it to be intimate in every way from the size venues to how we approached it to the sound checks and everything. I think that he and Sam came up with uh, that idea. Um, it, so it was, to me, it was exciting because everything was small. We're used to, a lot of us are used to working on a big scale and he wanted this to be really intimate. And, and, and who knows the whole time he could have had musicology, uh, in the holster knowing that that was going to come next. So I like that he would go big and small. Any good architect of anything knows how to compress you a little bit and then release you into this big zone. So I think he, he was a master architect. Right. And he probably, cause he's always was five steps ahead of everyone. So it's mm -hmm. a possibility that wasn't even on his, it was definitely on his mind. Right. Now, do you remember when rehearsals for this tour happened? Um, this isn't something we discussed, but something that just popped yeah. into the head. Were there certain songs that you were loving that you were probably doing in soundcheck and at Paisley that he didn't decide to use for this tour or did he kind of keep everything in? He, um, he, he knew the structure of what he wanted to do. Um, he knew how free the band was, Rhonda, Renato, John, specifically the horns on another level, but he knew that band, that core band was able to go anywhere. So um, he was pretty focused on what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do to run that line, that thread, the narrative through the thing. I, he told me he would take long breaks off stage. Uh, he told me that before rehearsal started. So I'm going to probably be taking long breaks on this tour when I go off stage and let the musician solo. And that was something he hadn't really, he had done it to a certain point, but it was either for a costume change or something like that. This tour it was just on purpose to stretch out. Everything was stretched out on this tour. It was very relaxed and stretched out. It was one of my favorite Prince tours. Mm -hmm. And the concept, having it kind of be done within the show, along with Rainbow Children, um, yeah, the WMPG radio thing to go on. Oh, that's right, yeah. You know, and play and playing the songs that I guess he kind of grew up with or loved and just wanted to show a love or have it, like, make the radio station, because you'd also have Rhonda do Didn't You Know and other things. Yes. That something that was already in his head during rehearsals that, okay, we're going to have, have this concept, Rainbow Children, but also with WMPG Radio. Uh, that, that I don't know. Um, it just sort of came up during rehearsals. Um, and actually, it started on the tour where he started calling at the radio station. I don't remember him, if at all, talking about the radio station until we started doing shows. So um, it, it, we, we kind of knew where he, was, where he wanted to go but we didn't know how he was going to put it together. So it was exciting to get it out there on the road and actually start it. And you asked earlier if, he, if there was a concept or if we talked about it in rehearsals and when that sort of that transition went from playing what we were playing in 2000, 2001 to this. And to me, there wasn't. I got a copy of the, he left me a copy of the uh, record. I listened to the record. I said, oh man, I'm going to have to do this and this and this is different. And the whole, you know, how the record has a different sound to it. Um, 
so I mean, everything was stretched out once he had Renato there and they started to work, you know, they started to all work with each other and cut that record. Um, I knew conceptually it was going to be a very different record, mm -hmm. but he didn't announce it that way. We just started, you know how it is. We would just start in rehearsals and just start playing the songs. And it takes a lot of, um, I'm going to use the word courage for an album that first with Rainbow Children, which was not mainstream in the least, when it first got showed um, and listened to at Paisley Park in June of 2001, the fans weren't exactly more open to it. Of course, by that time of its actual release, September 11th happened and people's minds were a little bit different in a different place. And I felt that kind of helped it be more accepted. But for him to kind of go, all right, we're still going to go with this kind of album. This is where I'm at and I want to bring it. And to open up with the Rainbow Children and have it be so heavily focused on that, that took a lot of courage in my opinion. I don't know where you stand on it, especially with um, how it was musically. That's an interesting, that's a, actually a really salient, but that's a good point because we have to remember, it's hard to always remember exactly what was happening politically, geopolitically, and all the evidences of, of uh, the goings-on in that time. But I didn't even really think about that. 9-11 happened, and that would... I'm posing this question to you. Do you think that then changed his angle of that album, or do you think it fit right into his vision of what that album was about? I think he would have done it either way but i think that people being more accepting to it and being more understanding of it and i was like well i'm gonna i was gonna get the message out about this anyway this is how i'm gonna do it and it just shows i'm on the right track hmm. you know that you can't listen to what everyone says here it was in june and if he would have been impulsive like how people are on social media that album may have been scrapped but he stuck to his guns and then it was released a life-changing event happened and I think, again, people were more open to it and more appreciative of where, where he was coming from musically, at least the fans that he had then, because his fan base wasn't as big as it would be with Musicology. Again, right. you're taking a huge risk with this. Even with doing the Hit and Run tour of 2000-2001, from the clothes that he was wearing on the 2000-2001 Hit and Run tour to wearing suits to coming out the way that he was, the style and just being more grown up and how he had the entire band dressed for one night alone, you know, was well, just interesting. It's, if you look at it, the way I look at, I've never vocalized this. The way I look at Prince is that here is a person who was a master at composition, a, a master songwriter. The way he wrote songs was brilliant. And then there's other, there's a deeper composition going on. There's a composition of a show. When you write a show, you have to know how to have a narrative arc through a show. You have to know how to make the show its own composition, a larger composition. And then you've got a career composition. So you have a, he's trying to compose his career at that point. Right. And I'm sort of making this up as I go along, but it's, it's, it's how I think about it. He was in a period where he was giving a little bit of a reprise and he was getting a little more personal and getting more personal and smaller, probably knowing he was going to come back with this giant tour coming right. up. Or maybe he just felt that. Maybe that, that's what happened, ended up happening. But he was a master composer on a different level. There's something in geology called scale invariance, where you have 
in geology, you have all these little things happening and they, they, they happen in the world on a giant scale as well. And it's just that you have to see the scale and variance of how that works. And he was, he could write a song, he could compose a song, he could compose a, a great show and he could, could compose his career. And I think they were all working in the same way. And it's just being more open to it. Cause I, I, was fortunate enough to write one of the first reviews of the Rainbow Children for uh, Uptown Magazine. And we called it controversial. And then of course, yeah, the album come out and it says the controversial new album from Prince, which at the time, no one else was reviewing it, but they were already putting the stickers on it, having it done by Redline. And the press didn't get a copy of this album until it actually got released through the music club. So that was just what was interesting with it. But for him, to have such faith in it and the musicianship is amazing. When you have Muse to the Pharaoh and Mellow, you know, it's just showing how, how much Prince has grown. You know, whether whether he was wearing a suit or different different stuff to go with it, but it showed him growing as an artist, leaps and bounds from say some of the 90s material that he was doing that kind of, some people felt he was losing his way and trying to go through it. And then here it is, not, the message of Rainbow Children wasn't exactly embraced by all the fans. They didn't like his Jehovah beliefs and all these other things, but the musicianship of this album was absolutely mm -hmm. amazing. And these performers and the live performance and you being able to see it every night and be a part of it, knowing that, you know, this guy was at that time talked about in the industry as an afterthought, mm -hmm. but we could tell I saw multiple shows, but you were able to be fortunate enough to be there for the entire tour. There had to be some sort of energy that you felt like there's got to be, there's going to be something bigger happening after this, that this is setting stuff up. I don't know. He, he felt very, he, he sounded like, sorry if I cut you off. He, he was confident from the first show that, that this was the path and, and it was the um, energy level was very uh, clear early and it only got better. Um, and the reason I can tell that is because we did a lot of after shows and the after shows were so great. And so he had this energy about him. And I think he liked uh, playing small. I like, I think he liked, you know, doing theaters. He used to say he loved the sound in theaters. He, right. he said that hockey, uh, he said that um, arenas were made for his quote was arenas are made for the sound of hockey sticks cracking over hockey helmets. And he said, that's not what arenas are for. This is the perfect right. thing. So, it, so I like the, I think the intimacy, it was all part of his plan. I would like to think it anyway, that that was all part of what he was trying to do. Right. And I go on it because when it was announced here in LA that he was performing the Kodak theater, um, the theater was new at the time. Now it's called mm -hmm. the Dolby theater mm -hmm. and people were hitting me up like, Oh my God, does he know how the sound is? Blah, blah, blah. So I emailed or contacted Sam Jennings and he's like, don't worry, we have the best sound guy in the business. Everything's going to be good with it. So that must have been good to have, have those feelings. And I don't know if you remember the sound of that show, but to just uh, to know that he had that faith in you, that regardless of the venue, regardless of any issues that you were going to have, you were going to make it sound as great as he would be performing. Yeah, yeah we had a small, it was a small band, if you remember, it was um, a small crew along with Sam and Takumi and, and it, there were just several of us and it was, it was small and it, we were tight and we were confident. And um, uh, the only disagreement I had with, or it wasn't even a disagreement. The only way that um, as a conceptual 
uh, effort, Prince and I differed, was that he said all of these venues should sound like amazing, right? And I said, well, yes and no. Most of these venues, a lot of them anyway, were um, operatic halls, opera halls, and so um, in symphony halls. And so they're made to, and I told, I explained to Prince, they're made to throw the sound everywhere. At least theaters, I see some, uh, Mr. Skeynes asked, uh, made a comment there. Theaters can sound great. Um, when you go to symphony halls, it can have the opposite effect because symphony halls are built and the architecture is such that they're made to throw unamplified sound everywhere. So we would one night we would play a theater, the next night we would play a symphony hall. So I had my hands full trying to make sure that every fan, every you know, got everything, got all the information given to them with a lot of energy. It's not just about hearing; it's about absorbing the sound and really taking it in and making it you know the best. As I say, somebody's life changes every night that I mix a show, and I want to be the one that to help that be part of that process happening. Absolutely. That's always awesome with it. And then you have, at least with the album, although it differed differently much from the set list as well, Rotor Muse to the Pharaoh, then Xenophobia, which ended up, you know, that being scrapped for Expedition. An extraordinary. Um, you know, I just remember the sound checks. Mm-hmm. And those could have been released in a different aspect as well. But Extraordinary, I remember him doing it in LA doing sound check and he just puts his feet up and just kick, just nails it. Manuela was behind him and like people weren't realizing that Prince was walking around basically just to see how the sound would be in different levels and how it sounded. Yeah. Cause he did care about sound that much to where he would sit in different areas just to see how it sounded to listener and not just how it sounded to him on stage. Right? Yes. When in the, when I was working as, uh, Michael Bland's drum tech, 90 through 94. There was a four or five year period that I was there on tours. I used to watch Prince walk the entire stadiums. He would go up and way up in the sides of stadiums and way in the back. And um, I knew instantly, I mean, I knew why he was doing that. And he just wanted to make sure that every every fan had this great experience and had great sound. So it was, when I started to mix him, I knew he would do that same thing. And it sort of taught me to care about every person in every seat in every venue you have to think that way and because uh some artists aren't like that they, they don't care but prince really cared as evidenced by there's so many photos you can find of him where he's in the audience with his microphone and it's when the doors aren't open and afshin or someone we get a, a shot of prince sitting just kind of cupping the mic and talking to the band like that and it was um uh even the it, no one's even actually talked about this on the one night alone on this tour it was the first time he'd ever used in-ear monitors and um, which are almost like you have, which are headphones essentially. So there's not big monitors everywhere. And, you know, the sound is intimate and the sound sounds like a record. So all of that played into the intimacy and his care of how it sounded for every person was never ending. It put a lot of pressure on me, but I was ready for it because I had so many years logged under my belt with him that I knew what was coming and what was going to be expected. Right. That's really good and really cool with the internet monitors because I think that's the only tour that he used those, right? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, we tried it again in musicology and I had both pair. He had two pair made, uh, made in the backup. 
as we went in the first day of, actually it wasn't, it was the day before we started rehearsals. I had them open on my desk for musicology. And I said, hey, do you want to start with these again? And he said, no, you can keep those. I, I never want to have those in my ears again. And I went, oh, I thought you want to keep using them because we had great success like that. And right. he said, no, I, I already have feedback five feet away from me. Why would I want it right in my ears? It's almost like he forgot that he used them. But what his point was that he told me later, subsequent to that, was that this that tour was all about teaching people, musicology and teaching young people. And so that was a different thing. And he didn't want, he wanted old school, everything to be old school. So monitors are old school. So he, right. he left, he left the intimacy of the One Night Alone tour and went to the bigger thing later. So everything about One Night Alone was intimate from the sound checks to the interior monitors, to the size of the venues, to the size of the crew, um, it, it all kind of worked in, in hand in hand. And I would, I'd have to think that he was just the master architect be, be behind all that. Right. And it's just, when it comes into that, it's just, he would put so much effort and thought into it that other artists just don't like his mind would be everywhere on so many different things. Now, even with coming up with this whole other things, like before other side of the pillow, and one plus one plus one is three between that, like asking the audience, like, who's a lead? Like, are you a leader or are you a follower? Mm -hmm. You know, or is it better to give than receive and then telling someone to give up their seat? Now, the shows I was at, I saw the person give up their seats, but they were at the one that was asked was at multiple shows. Mm -hmm. Was there anyone that you saw and that, that you remember that was like Prince was like, all right, we'll give up your seat to this person. They're like, oh hell no, I'm not, I'm not giving up my front row seat. Oh, I remember people saying no, or they would try and play it off. But but it was all a setup. You think in today's day and age, he would be found out, and that would be announced. Everyone would know because of social media. But city after city, people didn't know, and they said, yeah, it's better to give. And then of course he would put them, he would goad them into giving up their seat. And. Uh, that there's there's a lesson in there somewhere. I'm not exactly sure what it is. Maybe don't buy front row seats at a Prince show, but um, buy second row seats at a Prince show. But um, but he he had a sense of humor about it, and and who knows? I mean, maybe those fans got something extra too. You know, you don't know. I don't know that. Well, yeah, the one person, uh, Carrie, um, she was from Canada and saw that saw the tour earlier, and then so she gave up her seat for that show, and then. He actually was, he brought her on to do the thing cool as the other side of the pillow door. I don't know if that happened on other, other um, tour dates to where they would have to have the seat and then it would be someone else that would get, get serenaded on stage. Uh, nice. Prince. Yeah, I don't remember that. I don't remember that specifically, but. Uh... Right. And just with the whole um, as well, you know, are you a leader or are you a follower? And. I think it was also, he already said earlier during xenophobia, if you came to get your purple rain on, you're in the wrong place. Better leave now. Mm -hmm. And then was that another thing? I think with the fans, some of them were purple rain. They're like, oh, well, from purple rain, you know, you see one a leader, you know, so people were saying leader and then they'd be like, oh, too bad. And that's what it would be is like, well, follow me. And then they'd be on stage, which would be kind of an interesting concept because a lot more people want to be leaders than followers, but here it is. Follow me, follow me on this journey, follow me on, on this tour, follow me on these other, other paths that he was taking. At least that's how it came across in my opinion. You know? he, well, he's, he, there certainly, there were, there were lots of people who were not happy 
about a lot of the set list. <clears throat> and when word got out that he wasn't playing a lot of the hits, um, or before word got out, I was the brunt of a lot of that because in theaters, I'm the last person you see before you leave the, at least the main floor of the theater. So you, when you come down one of the two aisles, you're either going to run into the lighting person or you're going to run into me. And so I, I heard that often. I mean, I, I would, I always try and receive people when they're on their way out of a show, whether the comment is good or bad. I think that's fair to, to, to feel both, but people would say, Hey man, what, you know, what's up? why didn't he play purple rain? I said, Hey, it's a different kind of show. I mean, I had to come up with different ways of saying that it wasn't that. And thank God Prince announced that early in the show because, um, because that, that saved me a little bit of grief because people would come up and they come right to me and say, what's wrong? Why, why did he do that? Yeah. And he did, he did add on purple rain later in the tour. Of course it isn't on the one night alone live set. Right. But I really, loved his version of Purple Rain during that, especially doing it on piano. Yeah. Sometimes to bring out the guitar, it would just be an awesome, awesome version. Cause I love just for years, I'd be like, I'd love to hear Prince just play piano during Purple Rain. Mm. We kind of got it on that tour, you know? Yeah. And, and then, go ahead. No, I was going to say how fitting is it that we, <clears throat> we got to hear it at the, the, um, the gala show. Uh, that way you know and it's not it clearly it's not the first time he had he had played it like that but but it is special and i think he wanted to just change it up he would change up versions you know a lot of these on one night alone live uh and the after shows we'll get into that i'm sure a little bit uh later but the 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 versions of the songs are quite different he just had a different angle on them it's to keep people fresh you know artists want to be fresh and they want to change things up to not always do them the same absolutely just like with strange relationship Mm -hmm. This bringing back on the tour, even though he did another tours, it sounded like it was this band's sound. Yes, There's certain bands that have it. Strange relationship was this band's cut. That's right. <clears throat> yeah. Now, other things are going on just because there's a lot of songs that he did that were not didn't make the set, just probably for clearance or because of how much it would be. Like La 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 means I love you, or sing a simple song. Yeah. But that was part of the MPG radio. Um. I kind of liked him doing La 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 Means I Love You, but I can understand why it is on this album. Now, when you were, when did he tell you that he's planning on making the tour into a live album? I found out uh, when it was almost done. Um, he, he, uh, Lynn, his assistant, called me one day and said, are you in town? I said, yeah. She said, come on out. He wants to see you. He's in Studio A. So I drove out there. Uh, we didn't have a rehearsal or anything. And I walked into Studio A and he had a big, gigantic Jamba Juice. He was sipping on a Jamba Juice and had the tour playing. Um, I clearly, I knew it was the tour as soon as I walked in A. And he looked over at me and just gave me that nod and smile and had his, was sipping his uh, orange juice or whatever it was. Um, and then I, we immediately went into a listening session. He didn't turn it down. We just started kind of grooving and listening to it. But near the end of the song, each song, he would walk over and press next, or he would go to a different track. So I quickly did the math, and I knew, hey, these aren't just digital audio tapes, dat tapes that I recorded. Somehow these have been digitized so that he can go to the next track. So that meant something already. I, I knew something was up. And um, we listened to about three songs, if I remember right. And then he, he turned it down and said, I'm going to release this as a record. 
And um, of course I said, are you going to release that engineering money? And he said, Oh, I see how it is. And we laughed a little bit. And then he said, no, I'll break you off. And of course he never actually broke me off. I mean, the, the just to be a part of it is special enough, but uh, I think he gave me 25 copies of the uh, box set, which is pretty nice, you know, because it's a it's substantial box set. So I had that year Christmas was all taken care of. I just gave, gave them all out. But um, uh, he, that was the first thing I had, I had known. And it was very, it happens very quickly with Prince. So I heard that and then, um, and not too long later, uh, Lynn called again and said, he wants you to write something for the record. And I said, and she left it at that. And I said, what do you mean? Like, I don't know what you mean. And she said, well, the, he's having the band all write notes for the notes for the, um, uh, the, the uh, liner notes. <clears throat> and he wants you to write something. And I said, why would he, why would anyone care what I thought? And he said, well, it's, it's, it exists because of you and the recordings are good. So he wants you to write something. And I said, well, what is everyone else writing? And she said, well, I think John, it was John. He said, oh, he wrote his 10 favorite songs of all time. Um, Renata wrote something. Rhonda wrote something about her bass. It's sort of up in the air. It's whatever you want. You know, he's kind of cryptic about it. And I said, well, when does he, when does he want it? And she said, when do you think? So I hung up. <clears throat> and I just sat in front of the keyboard and just started to type. I'd never written anything, any sort of essay of, of any kind and um, wrote a, a page and a half um, essay, um, shifted things around, talked about my being a drum tech. I knew that the, she, oh, she did mention that the after shows were going to be a separate record. I, I talked about the app. I focused on the after shows. I figured that was a good place to start for me. So mm -hmm. I talked about being his drum tech and then coming back and mixing him. And then I talked about the after shows and how special those were. And uh, I'm glad we got a, um, a record out of that as well. And, um, and then the next morning he called me early. Um, my phone rang and I woke up and I answered it. And he said, um, I'd like your permission to take one line out of the essay. And I said, okay, well, what, what line is that? And he said, he believes in and belongs to himself. And I said, okay, yeah, I think I know where that is. I think that still works. And he read it to me without the line. And I said, yeah, that still works. And he said, cause you know who I belong to. Right. And I said, right. Meaning Jehovah. He was, that was obviously part of a big part of his life. And um, that was that. And that's the last I heard of it until he actually walked up and set the artwork i was at lunch and <clears throat> when i came back from lunch the artwork was laying on my sound desk um my soundboard and um uh i picked it up i saw wow this is great there was artwork there was you know my essay was on top of the artwork and it was had the printer lines on it it was really pretty and but it was just the actual printed page and he walked up to the, my desk and he said oh you probably want to get that framed <laughs> and i said thanks man so he didn't frame it for me but he did give it to me so um so I took it and I thought, wow, this is really going to come out. That was my first indication it was actually going to come out when I got the printed artwork that Sam had that that Sam had been working on. So, um, you know, there was always stuff brewing and always stuff being concocted there. So, um, and and having and having the guts to release a live tour, not a live song, a live tour, top to bottom. This was pretty much the set list, but you see how it's taken from different nights. There might be three songs in a row from Portland or something, and then two from LA. And but the but it sounds the same all the way through, and that's a testament to uh, not just my good mixing, but everyone's playing and everybody's sound and all, the, how we treated every 
every show was taken with the, you know, it was very exacting how we got the results we wanted to get. So it's a huge feather in everyone's cap that um, they were able to work at the, I mean, the speed at which Sam had to design, throw these designs at him was, was, was lightning quick and everyone was respondent during that time. So to come out of it with a, uh, a three disc, you know, box set, as well as the Vegas DVD, which is pretty much on the heels of that, I think, um, right. That all is a testament to that, but I didn't know. Certainly, he had that in the works um, earlier than any of us knew. I think. Right. And Michael had this question, which I thought, since you brought it up, about why didn't he just pick one show to release? Was he not happy of all the performances he show, or did he want to give people a different experience? I don't, Michael. I don't know the answer to that. Um, uh, when I got the track list, when I got actually, excuse me, when I got the box set and flipped it over. That's the first time I had seen. And I said, oh man, this is the whole show basically. But then when I saw it was taken from Doc, I mean, you know, I, I have no idea. Maybe was it was like a half dozen shows or something. I don't know how many how many cities that it came from how many cities, but um, but he he must've just liked the performances in right. um, <clears throat> or the solos or something about it. Um, because they were all equally, the, the sound was the same Right. The recordings were the same. I think it just he probably preferred transitional, interstitial stuff between one show to the other. Right. And I did see a majority of the show, at least of the release, was taken from Portland. So I don't know if he was mm. feeling proud more that night or something was left in his experience just because, you know, it flowed. That's all that matters more so, in my opinion, that the shows flowed, whether it was in Portland, L.A., or New York. Gotcha. You know? At least to me. Question. And if you are going to assemble a live record, you probably want to anchor it in one performance. Right. You, you want to have it sort of anchored and have the architecture laid out for you so that you can drop in, even though they're the exact same songs, you can just swap songs in and out and create that, that and experience. So interesting to me why he would choose certain things because the When You Were Mine from the second night of Kodak in LA, for him to use that. When he saw in the audience, because we, we were told the second eye is going to be a bunch of industry people. And of course, they were sitting their butts down. Then here it is. Prince about to go to When You Were Mine. And he goes, I dare you to sit down on this one. I'm like, why out of all the shows that he did, let's put that one in. Like, I dare you to sit down on this one. So mm. just for me, it just reminds me of that, that these idiots in the industry that just were paying him no mind, but they still wanted to make sure that they were at the show. Yeah. They were sit there you know arms folder or whatnot well i guarantee they paid for their seats we know that yeah because there were no comps on that tour it was everyone who came paid so that was good i like that i like that as well that's a good thing at least in my opinion now you brought up the after show i'm not trying not to jump around here too much but mm -hmm. i did see people asking a question regarding the question of you and how the guitar solo, and that wasn't edited, right? That performance was every, the full-length version of it, correct? I believe so, yeah. 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 It, well, it was different. You know, of course, it was different lengths every every night, but I didn't hear an edit in there of the guitar solo. I'd have You'd have to back it up with some video evidence or something. But um, there, is, there is a bootleg video from that show, but it was just about him, like, how long you have been waiting? Like, I'll make it up to you. And then mm, just, mm. like, took his time when it came to that song big time at least that night and more so on that tour but the guitar solo was just fire yes so i think it like made it up to him now 
on this tour, even though it was mostly piano, you still got some of his guitar licks going on. And this was the first tour that you had Renato Neto on the band. Another thing, just to jump to the after show real quick, that I remember at Soundcheck for LA um, on the second night as well, they were doing Bow to Dorothy Parker and Prince kept signaling to Renato, C. I guess he was playing in the wrong key. And then like what he said was, is Renato Neto, y'all, he, he's new. And then I know when they did it at House of Blues, he played it a little bit better than he did at Soundcheck, but Prince took over on the keys after saying Renato Neto, but he didn't say new this time. Mm -hmm. I just thought that was another interesting thing. But if I remember correctly, that was the first time on the tour that they added Bow to Dorothy Parker into the mix. Yeah, he, he definitely wanted to, along the way, he added some hits just because he could feel, he could gauge when people were going, hey, you know, we it gets out there and then the word gets out that he's not playing hits. So he would just pepper things in. He did that on more than one tour um, where he would just say, okay, now it's time to do this song, time to do this song. And of course the bands were all spectacular. So they were able to just do that without any rehearsal either. Absolutely. And John, John Blackwell, even though he joined in like 2000, was in the monster on that 2001 tour, it just seemed like there was just something special. And it seemed like he was highlighting uh, John Blackwell on this tour a lot, especially with the the plastic or glass cases, which would fit right now well in these times of yeah. having a barrier. Yeah, it's hilarious. But well, the, my favorite my favorite little moment of that was at at one of the sound checks. Someone asked Prince. They and I could hear at that one. I was close enough to hear everyone's, and they said, "Hey, what is the glass for?" And Prince said, "John's breath." And um, and of course, John couldn't hear him, so John went, "What?" And so it, it was it was even more funny because John didn't get the joke, and and uh, so you know, Prince always had a um, he, Prince was very kind to me. I I pushed for that glass. I never like using glass. I think it disconnects, you know, from the from the uh, audience, and and um, uh, I but I still push for it because I knew that. Prince wanted it to sound really tight and I wanted to control, I needed to control that drum sound, John's huge sound from getting away from me in, in these big rooms. So I, I apologize to anybody who didn't enjoy the glass, but it, it made for a better show and a better mix overall, so. That's good. Someone had this question going back to sound checks. How often did you work with just the band? That's what I'm assuming is from sound checks. Would he? Would you be working with the band, or would he always be there when checking for sound and stuff? Oh no, he uh, some he would come to every sound check, but we would work together before uh, Prince got there. So you usually that call would be about an hour. We'd be there an hour before uh, Prince got there, and I would show up two hours before the band. So I'd be there for two hours just to do my stuff, and then uh, and this is on a multiple night. Sorry. It, um, on a normal night, I would be in at eight in the morning. I'd load in and right. do my stuff all day and then not see the band till two. Prince would come in at three or four. And then, but he was always there. He never skipped a sound check from what I remember. And, um, and then we would have these, so these days were super long and then you tack on after shows and oh boy, you know, you're talking about, you're talking about legitimately a 20, 20 hour days, several days in a row. Ridiculous. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm I'm sure that there would be times where you're trying to sleep and you're still having visions of the show previously still in there. Like, ah, oh, stop. I, like can't, I can't listen to Family Name right now without, I think it's the five minute 
uh, it's like right at five and a half minutes where I have to change from Prince's voice down to a low voice. You know, some people thought that was done later. That wasn't, that was done live every night. So it was Prince's voice. Then it went down to a low voice. And then where he says, uh, we found this tape in the Akashic records uh, or something like that. And then, and then he does Thomas Jefferson and I had to pitch it up for Thomas Jefferson. So I, when I, to this day, when I hear that, even the studio version of that song, I, I flinch at that part because I, I'm still got that memory of, of having to do something, do a lot at that point in the song. It was a very, for being a jazz uh, tour and a jazz show, I was extremely busy because it was still an analog console. So I had a million things to do. And right. um, that's why it really helps. It pays to have an artist like Prince. And there are a lot of artists like that that'll say, when I ask them conceptually, do you want to have this old song sound how it does? And then if you were doing soft and wet or you know, some when you were mine or something, and then go right to a, a song like Seven. You know, do you want the production sound to change from the old to the new, or do you want to sort of make them blend or have a different? And and um, I always tried to keep Prince because he was even at that point was a legacy artist. There's a lot of legacy material. I tried to keep each song sounding as it did on the record, unless Prince said no, I want this to be aggressive or I want that to pull back a little bit or make that edgy or come up with one of your effects. You know, come up with something cool on that. So, okay, so I just take my notes and walk back to my desk and think it through. And that was when I um, I was following his lead on that. But even to let him know that that low voice was available, um, I made sure that he knew I could do that by I, me testing my mic um, in, in Paisley Park in rehearsals with the 1999 intro voice. So I grabbed my mic and went, don't worry, I won't. And he said, is that, that's you? And I said, yeah, we can do that live. And I said, yeah, I'm just trying it out. I mean, I did that to him twice before Rainbow Children. I mean, One Night Alone and before Musicology. I, just to show him, hey, we can do this. We can do these things. Cool. Instead of telling him I had something new up my sleeve, I would just do it and he would hear it and come over and ask about it. So there was a way it kind of had to unfold. Same with musicians. They would play a certain thing or play a certain lick and that would lead Prince to say, oh, that's cool. You should throw that in, you know? And so we, that was the audition process was actually doing it and then going, huh, what? Oh yeah, this old thing. Yeah, I can do that. So it was all very, it was always creativity being, being worked on at all times. That's pretty awesome and craziness that you're just like, hey dude, we can do this. We can add it up to it. Now someone as a follow-up, Someone had this question. Did the drum shields provide what you wanted on the audio when it came to John's sound? Yes. Yes, 100%. Um, without it, oof, without it, you still would have had the record. You could have had the record. Um, would One Night Alone Live exist without the drum shields? Yes. Yeah. It just wouldn't have sounded as clean. Um, when we got around to doing the Vegas DVD, I said, hey, um, I under, I told Prince that we, I said, I understand you having a live record without crowd, an audience sound. Um, but what, now that we have video, the audience is going to be on camera. So we should probably have audience mics. And he's like, no, I don't, I don't want, he didn't like listening to live shows and hearing pumped in amplified audience. You know, they add it later and it's all stereo. And we, none of us have ever watched a, a concert without them adding in, you know, the crowd in stereo and 5.1. And that's, 
you you hear that at the concert, but Prince wanted a pristine recording. He was going for the recording. That's the studio guy in him. He always would tell engineers on it. He would tell new monitor engineers when, when one would get fired and bring a new one in, he'd say, think like you're in the studio. Keep thinking like you're in the studio. He liked clean sound. He liked things. And just all you have to do is listen to For You or Prince, listen to his early records. And, and he likes things clean and sparse. Even in arrangement, there's a lot of room. There's a lot of room and air in his uh, in his work. That's the beauty of it. <clears throat> it's really awesome. I need you to have all that stuff. Now, someone had another follow up with the shield. Mm -hmm. Did John have a monitor inside the shield or in his ears? Uh, he had in ear monitors, so he had. Um, I don't remember if John had a subwoofer. I think he did on that tour. He did. So he had a little, you know, a big uh, 15 inch speaker behind him to add some booty to, to his sound, but he had in-ear monitors, the whole band did. So um, for listeners that, and watcher, people watching who don't know, if I were to, if they would be playing a show and I would turn the sound off in front of house, you would literally just hear the snare drum and maybe the cymbals. And so it was that critical, you know, with in-ear monitors, you don't hear any bleed basically at all. So that was, that was helpful in allowing us to capture really clean and pristine audio. I can still get a good releasable recording. It's just that um, drum, drum glass kind of came in for several years, a 10 year period, and then it went out. Nobody really uses it as much anymore. They'll use it in different disguised ways, but it's not quite the, it wasn't prolific like it was back in those times. Now someone had this question and it keeps coming up. Do you remember any incidents that happened in Salt Lake City during an after show on the tour at all? No, but I, oddly enough, I, I forget about what venues look like, but I remember the venue from Salt Lake City. I remember how it looked. Um, and maybe I remember that I couldn't get a drink at that after show or something. Because can you not get, no, you can get, you can get a drink in Salt Lake City, can't you? Barely. I'll answer that. Um, uh, but uh, no, I don't remember anything uh, specific going on in an after show. The after shows were fun. I will not speak for Renata, uh, Renato and Rhonda, um, but the fun or the horn players, but the fun of those after shows is that's where we could even let loose a little bit because we would all have a glass of wine or a, a scotch or something. And then um, that was really loose. And I think they were they were very loose intentionally, um, and people would have wine. They would Prince would have a glass of wine. People would relax and enjoy themselves. It was really off the clock. And right. um, and remember, Prince made very very little money on those after shows. I, I can't remember it, it, a time where he took the whole gate. Um, you, typically, after the show, the next day we would get he would take all the money after they collected the money from the door he would pay the food and beverage um, bill for the band, whatever the band drank and ate. They would pay that. And the rest of the money, he would split up equally with the band and the crew. So that was, you know, Prince didn't make anything on those. It was, um, so I was glad to be able to at least come up with a releasable record for him as sort of a payback for all <clears> the, uh, for all the stuff that I got. Cause we, we would leave, you know, sometimes we made more, from two or three after shows in a week than we would on our salary. That's how much we were paid. So that he was super gracious in that way. Th th those were ma magical. And nobody does that anymore. Name me an artist that doesn't after show. 
Then name me an artist that does an after show and gives pays the food and beverage, the F&B, and then gives all the money to their band and crew equally. Doesn't happen. It's a special artist, a special person that does that. And we earned it too. I'm sure with those 20 hour work days. Oh yeah. Woo. There were several times that I was called, he wanted to refine something in the mix. And um, so I would get called off the, uh, my bus and have to go on his bus for a while. Mm-hmm. And people would go, Oh my God, man, you rode Prince's bus. It, it was 80 from what I remember, it was always 85 degrees. So it was a super smoking hot bus. The temperature was always, I was like, man, this thing's maxed out. And so it was super hot. And then we watched the show in the bus as we were going down the road. And when finally he would give up and say, okay, thanks. And then he would disappear in the back. And I would tell the driver, man, find my bus pronto. One night I had to stay on the bus. That was musicology, but I had to stay on the bus and sleep up, sleep up in the front. It's a wonder he didn't come up in the morning and find me stripped nude, man. It was hot as hell on that bus. Stop talking about that because my air conditioner went out about five minutes ago and it's 100 degrees. Oh, it's not hot in LA right now. Come on. It's ridiculous. Yeah, where I live, at least the San Fernando Valley, that the air conditioner went out like five minutes ago. So let's not talk about heat. I'll figure it out in a minute. Um, someone asked this question did you, re- did you record every single show every time you mix for Prince, or you just ask for certain shows to be recorded in full? Every show that I mixed. Prince was recorded. It would have been a huge mistake not to do that. Um, there were times in re- uh, rehearsal that he didn't, um, that he requested something from me. That happened once or twice. And man, I had to get on top of that. So um, there was one specifically where he said, on One Night Alone, where he said, they jammed for a while. He They ended the jam and he said, over the mic, he said, oh, Scotty, I hope you recorded that. And I, I was far away and I shook my head, no. And he said, oh. And so now's my chance. So I walked up there and, and said to him, listen, and if you want me to record, you have to let me know. Just say my name. And when I look at you, just nod your head upward and I'll start, I'll fade in the recording. Because I would have gotten in trouble if I would have been recording. Right. And shouldn't have been. So I just, it's all about communication. That's what we had, uh, what Prince and I shared really, really well was a good good communication. I, I always let my intentions be known. I took what he said seriously. I wrote things down. I took notes. Um, I always let him see my notes on my computer. I had an old little Sony Vio 505 something, or it's a little purple computer back in the day. And I always had that open so he could see every note for every song, I, meaning all my mixed notes for every song. So right. it would say, it would say, uh, could never take the place of your man, 777 millisecond delay on guitar on the solo. And, you know, I had all my notes so that he could see there was a lot of transparency. I I had to provide a lot of that transparency. I had to, I had to use body language and show him that I was transparent in everything I was doing. So we had a, uh, it, it wasn't there at first. We, we built the trust that I would record everything. The only shows I, I did record are the TV um, appearances. Um, uh, Tonight Show, things like that. Ellen, when we would do a show, that was all out of my hands, and that was union stuff, so I didn't wasn't able to record that. But of course, then it's going to go to air, so there's a recording of it anyway. Right now, someone had this this interesting question. Just um, Audrey, how many monitor engineers did he go through on that tour? I don't remember specifically. I remember in my in my tenure, I counted 
33 in the, my years of mixing him. So they were quite frequent at that point. And, um, I remember him coming in. It wasn't anything crazy. I don't, I don't ever remember carrying two at a time, but, um, I could be wrong. And maybe the sound company knows something I didn't, but they, there was nobody extra on the bus that everyone was saying, who's that? Well, that's the guy after this guy. Um, but there were 33 monitor engineers in my time. And, um, a lot of them were not good. And, um, and some of them were really good, but they didn't get the chance or they didn't, they didn't show him they had what it took to stick around. It was a confidence thing. Prince would have to look at you and know that you were a, a soldier for his protecting his music and wanting it to sound exactly how he wanted it to sound. And um, I have a friend who said, oh, Scotty, you and I both speak Prince. And that's a good way of saying it. You either spoke Prince or you didn't speak Prince. If you speak Prince, you, you knew what to, you knew what to do before he would ask. And so monitor engineers just, he didn't have the, the time of day for him because they, and, and at the end, um, the St. Bart show of, of, on New Year's Eve of 2016, the, the 2015 New Year's Eve show, uh, I did monitors from front of house. There were a, all, a lot of those after shows on the, um, on the box set, on the after show uh, disc and, and vinyl. I did monitors from front of house. I would call over and say, can you hook up monitors from front of house? Can I run the stage wedges? from my position. They said, but yeah, we can do that. Do you want to do that? And I say, absolutely. Cause I could do it faster and knew what I, what they would want. And ultimately I think I ended up making a cheat sheet for the after shows. So when we had an after show, the local engineer at the, at the club came over and did had to do monitors. I would just hand them a list of every player and then all the instruments and what each player wanted in their mix. So it was a quick way of sort of playing, uh, battleship and they would say okay prince wants everything in his mix ronda wants kick snare hat prince's vocal guitar bass and keyboards you know so it because those things happen like super fast right and now in regards to the box set it coming with the one night alone uh excuse me live at the aladdin dvd mm -hmm. <laughs> so why was vegas filmed the way it was and why was it not the full show from what i remember i don't know yeah I was going to say this. From what I remember, Sena was uh, was doing it, but she also gave a, a lot of her crew. It was probably about five to ten people. Yeah. Handheld devices. That's right. Recorded, and that's why some of them were kind of short and in different places. They couldn't get it. I don't know about why it wasn't the full show. It was a different set list than what you have because you have mm -hmm. God of Cardigan yep. on there, which isn't on uh, the One Night Alone uh, live set, but excuse me, but I think that's probably why you didn't get the full show is kind of how it was filmed. But I think that's what it was done is they were trying to do something different. And that's why, you know, some people are like, why was it filmed the way it was and why was it not the full show? But that's why I think it was. Do you have anything that you know about that? Or why? No, not really. I believe that was um, a little bit of a one-off that show. If I remember correctly, um, it had the feel of that. I think we had just done a, done a TV show or something around then. And then we went to Las Vegas and did it, or maybe we did it right after we came back from Japan or something. I, I can't remember the exact, you know, the details better than I do, but, um, but we, uh, uh, the only thing I remember about that is when I saw Santa come in and was looking around and doing that director thing and kind of saying, okay, we can shoot this and this. And that. I saw all the people with their cameras and everybody was loading up and charging up. And, um, 
at that point, I didn't even know uh, a lot of us. It was a, it was news to us that that was going to happen. I learned that day. So um, one of Prince's security, his head of security came over to me and said, hey, this is like this will be filmed as a and he wants to release this. And I said, OK, cool. I mean, that, yeah, OK. It didn't change my job at all. Um, right. Had I had some some lead time on that, I probably would have multi-tracked it. But it costs, it's very expensive. It's back then it was seven to 10 grand to have a truck come in and park in the parking lot and take all the audio out there and multi-track every track individually. And then you go in and mix it later, like they did the Auburn Hill show on um, uh, musicology. But so I was just gonna record it to my to my digital audio tape, to my DAT recorder, the way I got the One Night Alone live record. Um, but then you had all these camera people there. And so, Prince called me the, to the dressing room right, right before the show. And um, I had to fight my way through the crowd and back there. And I went, knocked on his door and I came in and he said, you know, we're going for a recording tonight. And I said, hey man, I go for a recording every night. And he said, that's what I'm talking about. And gave me a little hand slap. And because I, I had to be unafraid, I didn't, you know, I, I, I'm, I was at that point in my career, I was sort of immune to the, to getting tensed up about stuff. It was just, you had to make every, every moment was just like it was, existed for the people in the room. And if we could get any ancillary product for him to sell and be, be a part of that later, that was great. But I always tried to do the job I was there to do, which, which, which was in the room. I had, the, I had my eye on what he was doing, especially when I, would, when I knew he was going for something else. Right. You know, I, could, I could tell. And as I told the story at, at one of the after shows, he... Um, when George Clinton had already recorded, had already sat in, I think in New York, was George Clinton in New York? Was he at the World in New York? I think that's where he was. And anyway, he, um, he, uh, we did another after show much later. And he said, tonight we're going to do a short show, after show. But at the end, I'm going to start chanting, it ain't over. I'm going to turn my mic to the crowd. And you can turn off all the instruments and really just turn the PA off too and just record, make sure you're recording. Cause he knew I was only recording in stereo. And um, so he just said, turn everything else off and turn up the mic and record the crowd chanting, it ain't over. And of course, back at Paisley <clears throat> Park. So I knew something was up because he needed that clip of people saying that to, for Joe and Femi back at Paisley Park to, to put that over the crowd. Cause it, they, you probably couldn't hear it chanting enough in on the New York part portion, so he he added that in. So he was always right. devising something. Yeah, he he was always had had another thing in his mind. That's awesome. And yeah, I think it was you guys played Japan, and then you came and you did the Tonight Show for Everlasting mm. mm -hmm. on Friday, and that was to promote the box set, but also promote the show in Vegas that weekend. And then of course, we love the Vegas show. It was, mm -hmm. it was long, and the after show, and of course. You know, we're around, we go up to Takumi, like, dude, we love it. He's like, oh, man, this was crap. The Japan show was so much better. So we're like, all right, well, damn, if we thought this was great, Japan maybe probably was so much better. Um, and then someone had this to say on YouTube, just because I want to show that we're, we're paying attention to YouTube as well. And you're getting a lot of compliments on Facebook as well. Sky, just want I appreciate to say, great job on tours. I love listening to a nice, strong studio sound. Good. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm proud of the record. It's um, again, it was a collective, it was, it was collectively courageous for everyone, especially on Prince's part to, to do this. No artist 
releases a stereo recording as a major record and as the first live record in their career and without all these big hits on them. Can you imagine? <clears throat> it, so it, it's that was how much ahead of the curve I think he was. Right. And thank you. I'm, what's interesting is I'm focusing on you on the screen. So I'm not looking at any of the questions here and I'm not looking any other place. So I apologize if I look like I'm looking over at a cat or something no, in the room. It's but tough because I think I I'm could do this. Find the question. But that would be but that would be a little bit uh, disconcerting after a while. We don't want to do that. I'm no. just I wish that this was a better platform, like I said, to where I can just put the questions in a queue and make it all easier instead of having to do that. I don't want you to feel I'm disrespecting you at all because I'm totally listening to oh, you. Oh no, no, no. I'm locked onto you. I'm yeah. focused on you. So Prince wanted me to always like make sure that they felt part of the conversation and things like that. Another question I saw earlier, and it has to do, I saw way earlier in the show, but since you brought it up about recording, they want to know how often on this tour that he would um, want to stop somewhere and record new material. Ooh, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, he, he would, um, on musicology, he flew home a lot. He went to Minneapolis and back an awful lot. Um, that was a bigger show, so we had an extra day in between a lot of those shows. Um, this show was a smaller show, so we could do it night to night to night. So I don't know if he went home a lot. I don't know if he booked uh, studios in these cities like that. I'm unaware of his uh, extracurricular recording, shall we say, um, <clears throat> for on this tour. That's a good. That's a really good question. I don't know the details of that. Right. Uh, there's some questions about the gala, but we'll get into that later <clears throat> talking about the utah gig again now what was your favorite track or favorite song on this tour that you just loved every night um how come you don't call me anymore really yeah i i just remember um songs are I don't want to get too. I don't want to be too esoteric about this, but um, I, I've I've found over the course of my long career now that I've forged relationships with each song over the course of a tour, and when acts would drop a song or um, shift things around, um, it's like moving friends out of groups and they either get dropped out of this group or they get shifted to another friendship thing. And there, there's just the relationship between the songs to each other. And then I form a relationship with the songs. And that song, I remember when I'd see it coming up on the set list, I always got happy about it. It, it also featured a, there was a huge cue for me in that song that I could not screw up um, and never did, thankfully, um, where he, uh, early on the tour, he would, um, uh, you know, and then he would scream and I had to, and once he screamed in rehearsal, I went, Ooh, I know what I can do. So when they did the song the next day, I grabbed that scream and it echoed. And, um, the problem was that it, he, he screamed on the downbeat of the band. So you got all this bleed of Rhonda and John hitting their instruments when you, when you had the echo. Um, so, after about two shows of that, or it was a couple of few shows of that, I went to Prince and I said, Hey man, can you do me a favor? Just can you go and then scream clean after that? Because that way I can grab a clean one. And he didn't do anything more than go, mm, Yeah. And so that night I thought, 
well, shit, he's going to forget. I know he's going to forget. And that was a risk because I was grabbing the scream after it had occurred. So I was taking a, a chance and I thought, well, if he, if he doesn't do it and I miss the scream, it's on him because I told him and he agreed to it. And of course he nailed it perfectly. Um, the only thing that'd be better is if he used the version on the record that it was the first night we did it. I don't think it was, but, but it went, and we made that go. Sometimes he would get up and just walk around a little and look at his watch or pretend he was doing something. Cause he liked hearing that just go on forever. And then he would go ah, and stop it. And I would pull it. So all of that is live. None of that is done after the fact. And that having that happen in that song was really um, special. I love that song. And um, uh, so that was my favorite song in that tour. The song to which I looked forward every night. Um, there's a lot of good ones. One plus one plus one is three was fun. It was great. Um, there are so many um, that, that uh, and fans probably all, everyone has their own favorite from that era as well. Family name was fun because he would, he would play with the audience and ask them their last names. And he, he had a lot of interaction with the crowd on family name. And it was an important song to him talking about their history and their past, and the, which is very timely, you know, now for us. So um, it, it's, uh, there were, but my favorite always remained, How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore. That was, from the beginning, that was my favorite song of the tour. Right. <clears throat> no, my questions aren't too long-winded. If they're too long-winded, tell me, just go like this. Just No, 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 no. Give me that. Dude. If you want to be up all night, we're going to be up all night. Exactly. Up all night with Scotty Baldwin. Whether there is air conditioning or not, <laughs> we should do it. Now, someone, someone had this question. Prince seemed to have a ton of guitar foot pedals on stage at his disposable. What parts of his act sound fascinate you the most? And were there any times you didn't get the guitar mix quite right? Um, no, I always, I knew... There, there were times early in, in 2000 and 2001 that I didn't have it loud enough for his liking on that, on the hit and, was it hit and run tour? Hit, hit and run one or something. I don't know what, what it was, 2001, um, where he would tell me afterward, he would listen. He would say, hey, I need the guitar up with the voice. I need those that to be higher. So I just made a general change. You know, and once I got it to where I knew he liked it, then I sort of locked that in my memory bank and that was imprinted to where to put it. So I, I um, his guitar tone changed a little bit through the years. Um, uh, he was on, uh, one night alone live and, and even musicology, he had an edgier, it was a little bit uh, more agitated tone. His distortion wasn't quite as uh, rich and warm. It was a little bit more agitated and that was fine. It was just what he was hearing and what he wanted to hear. Um, his pedals, my favorite pedal of his is his phaser pedal, <clears throat> because that's what you hear at the beginning of computer blue. That, and that's, that's, that sound we all know, you know what it is when you hear it. And his phaser pedal with some feedback happening was, is no one, when they play Prince, when they try and do Prince and play guitar, they never nail that. It's not just in the settings. It's all in the way he knew how to play that pedal. He had it down. And it was important. He had, I don't know, God, he had at least a dozen pedals up there. He incorporated a whammy pedal so he could do these big dives and, and up and down dives. And uh, so that changed over the years. And I was so amazed that he did everything with a straight stand. If you find a picture of Prince's guitar pedal board online, he had a few over the years. But the curved one was really cool because he could play it like it was almost like a keyboard with his feet. He was stomping on pedals, and that was theatrical as well. But he, he, um, my favorite um, moment of that, and I don't think it was on that 
one night alone live tours. So forgive me for this, but I believe it was two, 2001. He was playing. Uh, I could never take the place of your man. And he had, there's a breakdown at the end where he has, a, he has an echo on his guitar and he missed turning on the pedal. He ran by his pedal board and I knew he missed it. And I already had a backup echo ready for him on that song. And I believe that's the one that's 777 milliseconds, if I remember right. And so um, I had it ready and he played the solo and I added the echo where it should be. And then he laid down on his back on one of the wings of the stage and put his, crossed his leg over his knee and played the solo. And I had this echo on it the whole time and turned it off at the right time. After the show, of course, I knew he'd want to talk to me about it. So after the show, I, I um, got called to his room and he opened the door just a little bit. And he said, see, that's what I'm talking about. And I knew what he was talking about. So he just, it's like looking out for someone that, that I, when I knew that pedal wasn't on, I, I added that effect for him. And so we had a strong crew, Takumi and, and the, 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 the crew that Takumi built was very strong and we had a lot of um, camaraderie. Um, and so we, we were looking out for, for one another on that tour. Right. Now someone had this question as well. The vault didn't look very organized in 2016. How did he go about organizing those live shows? If he did just, just in a simple box? Um, I would give them every night to either Scotty March, uh, who was, uh, Zachary March was one of Prince's security, his other security guy, or Trevor Allen. So I would give it to one of those guys. They'd be waiting at front of house. So at the end of the show, I'd have both, I'd have the one dat that was already recorded and run out of time in the box already. The second one was waiting. And as soon as the show was over, I would, it was all labeled already before the show. I would slap it in, click the little thing so you couldn't record over it accidentally and hand it to, to Trevor or Zachary. And they would, I'd make them sign a little uh, form that I had filled out saying, I just gave you two dats and two video cassettes or whatever. I'd write two and two, and then I'd make them sign their name. And that was to protect me. Um, <clears throat> and so they would take them right away. And I assumed that they bulked them up in a week or something and sent them home a week, FedExed them home a week at a time. And, um, but I don't know how they revolted. Dave Hampton wasn't around back then. That was just before I had brought Dave Hampton into the fold there. So I'm sure they just got thrown into boxes in the vault and then, um, then Prince listened to them at one point, I'm sure he, he charged Joe or Femi to with the, put them in charge of saying, coordinate all this, find me some good takes. I'm going to listen to some of these. And, um, but when Dave Hampton got there in 2003, then everything went to a scanning system. Everything was beeped in, everything was cataloged in a more orderly fashion. Because when you were dealing with that much material going in and out of the vault, and then we'd have to go in there to, to pull sounds off of a multi-track for doing a song live, there's going to be people passing back and forth and you're going to get, you're going to, it's not going to look like the cleanest place in the world just because you have that much material reaching back that far. Um, so yeah, I'm sure at that point they were just thrown in a box and thrown in the vault. <clears throat> and a follow-up to the guitar pedal question. Any idea why Prince had a love for boss guitar pedals? No. Takumi would know that answer. Several of his all of his guitar techs would know that answer. Um, I'm sure it's just um, my guess would my educated guess would be that it was familiarity with what he knew and what he used growing up. It right. worked. He knew how it worked. Um, you, he knew how to get in, to lean down and get the sound he wanted from, he knew what every button did. 
So um, it was familiarity. He could do it without someone there. And that was important because he had to often, when he was playing alone or when he would, you can imagine how many times we'll never know. He's at Paisley Park. He's in the kitchen. He's alone in the whole building. He feels like playing guitar. Now, you or I would go up to our bedroom and plug in the little lamp or put on some, you know, guitar simulator or something or play through our iPhone or something. Um, Prince was able to walk into a 120 by 102 foot soundstage mm -hmm. that had a full PA system and he could walk up and he wanted to know how to, he needed to know how to turn it on, turn the PA on and play at full volume for as long as he wanted to. You know, that was his, his chessboard was a little bigger than ours, the one we're playing on. His chessboard of bigger. He could walk into a concert stage and play guitar. And I think that was it was something he was with which he had familiarity. Boss was a brand and something he had been looking down at for years. So he knew what it was going to do. Um, he had a rotating bunch of rotating guitar techs. So this was some form of familiarity that could keep him anchored to his guitar tone. Um, right. I'm sure all those answers are right. And um, from Dwayne on mm -hmm. Facebook, we have what, which format did you record with? Uh, hey, Dwayne. Um, I used uh, digital audio tape. I was the first, from, to my knowledge, I was the first engineer, live engineer, that had the ability to record digitally in any way. So um, I had digital, a Panasonic 3600, 30, or 3800 uh a record deck. One of them was from Paisley Park. One was from the sound company. I quickly realized I needed two, not just to back up. Um, that was my backup, but also Prince's show went over two hours often and a DAT tape could only record two hours. So at that time, so I had to start recording the next digital audio tape that DAT is short for that. It's an uh, acronym. Um, and so I would start recording that. And, and so it was just the left and right out of my console. Uh, that one night alone live was, as a matter of fact, the kind of desk I was using in the analog desk, they had two outputs that were equal to what you would call my master fader, my my red master fader. And one said record one, one was rec one, one was rec two. His record one was to my DAT recorders, record two was to Prince's um, camera. He recorded using a video camera out front oftentimes. So I always had it set up like that. It was very simple. Nothing extravagant. Certainly, clearly the way Prince did it, and, and it worked. Right. That was awesome. That was just the simple stuff would work, but that's what he wanted, and that's what you'd use. Someone has this question. It's not necessary for one night alone, of course, but how many – this is this could be a very loaded question. How many magical moments did you witness at Paisley Park that should see the light of day just to show more of his genius? Um the only magical moments, light of day, uh, so many, of course, um, because he was a charmed guy. Um, he, things just went his way. Like I said, if you drop a cat out of a, from 10 feet or from 12 feet, they make the adjustment with their tail. They always land on their feet. That was Prince. He, things almost never went wrong for him. And if they did, he acted cool about it and walked away. So he still got out of it looking good. Um, he, um, there were a lot of, a lot of great moments. Uh, the one that I will say is that stands out the most, and I'm sure the, the brain trust at the estate, the family 
record companies that was the was the January twenty first, twenty sixteen piano and microphone gala show. Those two shows, the first and the second show, were the most intimate performance I'd ever seen them have. They were the most special performance. They were autobiographical. There's so much about them and they will come out, I'm sure, in, in due time. I have no in to know when those are coming out. But um uh they that was a that was a really special you know moments what constitutes a moment could be a second or 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 an hour or uh, whatever and this was a this was a one night this that was very very special and i and that will that will stand out as as one that will come out eventually you know i'm sure they'll get to it now someone's reaching back there mm -hmm. you go they want to know, are you the Scotty that Prince mentions in The Undertaker? I am. That's right. I had a different last name. I took my wife's last name because she's more famous than I am. So I I uh, took her name in marriage. So if people say Scotty Pakulski or Scotty P and then Scotty Baldwin, I, I took my name, took her name in marriage in 2008. But I am. I was, that's when I was Michael Bland's drum tech. Um, that was one night, late at night. He had the PA on. I don't remember there even being a sound guy there. It was Paris Patton was his name, the director, and Paris Patton um, filmed Prince and Sonny and he um, playing that that show. I mean, it wasn't even a show. There was no one in the room except me. I was off to the side. And Prince had given me a, he said, you need to have a microphone in case I need you to play some percussion. And so I had a Sennheiser 421. I had a, a, a standard mic over there and I had jingle bells and I had a tambourine and and cymbals, and I had little shakers and eggs and things like that, you know, just regular percussion, percussive stuff. And I almost never used it. I played, I think I played Cowbell and Hockey Talk Woman all the time. He wanted that. Um, so I, that was generally how that started. But um, so when he said, yeah, when he started the song, The Undertaker, he just wanted me to play anything. I don't even remember hearing that that, that mic was, was on because I don't think a sound engineer was there to turn it on. So, but he, when he does say, Scotty, shake something. That's kind of, I don't know, what year is that from, Doc? That's probably 90, 93. Recorded in 93 and then kind of released in 94 when you added um, uh, Vanessa to the other thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just craziness. It's going back on there. And I just watched it a few weeks ago. I had to pull out some stuff or something else. So it's just funny that that one's brought up. Um, this one... We'll put this one from YouTube. Why did Prince not do many live records? I mean, this was the first one he ever did. Yeah. Was it ever, like discussed why he didn't do so many or, you know? No, for somebody that's such a prolific artist. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. I had, I had a thought, but go with it, man. You would, one would think that because he was such a prolific live performer, certainly uh, the 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 mark the the person against which others should be um, viewed um, yeah you could say James Brown you could say Hendrix you could say Journey and their use of video and 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 things like that there there are a lot of benchmark Pink Floyd you could say a lot of artists but Prince was the one that played all the instruments and had the the sexuality and the dirt and the sweat and the the funk and the soul and the rock and he could do it all and um and so being the most uh, prolific live performer you think that they would have been it's kind of a set, steady stream every few years he'd have a live record come out but um 
for, for whatever reason, he never got around to it. I think he was always busy working in the studio. And this one sort of was put in his lap. I do not think he planned it. Um, I mean, I know he didn't plan it just from things that he said to me, but um, he was sure grateful for being able to give this. It seems like an unlikely choice, right? The Rainbow Children material, the One Night Alone live tour. But I think that's why he liked it. Sometimes, you know, he, he was a true contrarian. He was a, a real contrarian. So he would he would say things like, I noticed one person kind of asked on your feed yesterday when you announced things. Um, they said, well, he, he talked about unity and being together and being as one and, and talking about our similarities rather than our differences. And then the next verse said, look at where the MPG Music Club has. They got the best seats. You know, so there was, but that's just because that's who he was. He was a Gemini, if you believe that. And, and he was a contrarian. You know, he would, he, he was, there were a lot of times that he was do as I say, not as I do. Right. And um, so those of us that were savvy and made our way through there and knew how to navigate uh, him as a person and as a performer, we knew we had a backup plan. We could either do as he said, or do as he did. We could do all things. Right. I do remember from some interview that he did, print interview, that he didn't like releasing live recordings and stuff because he was afraid because he liked changing up the sound or changing up how it was played live. Mm -hmm. He was worried that if you do something like that, then when they go see him on tour in five to ten years, they're going to expect that version of it instead of where he's at now. And he wanted to be able to play with it and not have their expectations of it. At least that's from from an interview that he said. Remember, since they went, he wouldn't allow them to record. That could be paraphrased, you know. Right. So you get that wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean that that makes sense. He was <clears throat> he was into control, so he wanted to control the stream of experience, and he wanted there to be something different live. And so you'd be given away. You'd be you know showing your slip a little bit if you if you gave out live performances. But um, ultimately, I think he just was overwhelmed by by how the how the record was, how the tour was received and how good the sound was so that he, he could do that. I don't think he had provision to do that before. Back in those days, you see, it wasn't as easy as it was now to multi-track record. When I work with Wang Li Hum, this artist, and I'm working in China all the time in the last two years, obviously not now, but um, every night I would, on the computer I'm using right now, I'd record you know, 70 tracks, you know, or something at a time. So, and th every one of those nights could be a, a record, a live record. And, but Prince just, he was too busy and too manically working, working on other things that he probably never gave it a thought. But I can see his answer being kind of true, not fully true, but I think that's, I think that's in there somewhere. That right. <clears throat> and then... <clears throat> to say it's such a magnificent release you are rightfully proud literally groundbreaking so grateful we have it and yeah, just on it because that what really was aside from that really was his only like and if i'm if i'm praying this you guys can can get me down on it but it was his only like real live recording yeah the first one and the last one official official official, official. And I'm really uh, super glad it came out that fans can enjoy it too, because as a member of the MPG Music Club, you felt special that you had it and you got it. And um, uh, and 
but but it's 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 time and it's it's a special record and and he's talking to the crowd and as um, a colleague of yours Andrea Swenson said that there's something she made a really great point that there's something really special about being able to hear the crowd through Prince's mic and that's a really beautiful thing on which to pick up because um, there was such intimacy at those shows it was uh, unlike any, I seen before or or after I, I didn't until the piano show in 2016 so it was really special and i'm, I'm glad it was uh finally released now on a on a in a, in a larger platform right now i don't know how they would do this because you didn't have like the technology then but um did prince ever ask you to release live recordings no i mean i don't know how I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but the, right. the, the, um, the, <clears throat> the chain of uh, provenance, the, the, the chain of, of um, having, holding on to things was never in my, I always tried to get things out of my possession, knowing how Prince was about bootlegs and things like that. I always got things out of my possession right away. I tried to, I protected myself with having my own little thing to sign that I gave them to security <clears throat> or Prince himself. Um, and they, if you notice, um, I'm not big into the, I don't look into the bootleg scene. I don't know all the releases like you do, but you'll notice that the, the fewest amount of quote unquote board mixes that are out are when I was there mixing because they went from me to security and went in and put in that way. But no, he never asked me, I think what they're, I'm assuming what they mean to say is, Hey, release this or put this out. Right something like that. And that's, that was never the case because anything I had got turned in right away. Oddly enough, the show that we ended up using on the, um, that Prince ended up using on the after show um, disc, I don't know which tracks are, uh, you probably have it right in front of you, which tracks are New York or at the world. Um, <clears throat> but I believe it's the, the there, there clearly there are some from the world on that um, release. That was the only time that I can remember, there were others, but that's the only one that pops into my mind where we got done with the after show. Um, I ran out, Prince left, and I knew he left left, and I was trying to catch up with him. Security didn't come to me because they were fighting such a big crowd to get him out. I ran and I saw the bus going away, or the, excuse me, the limo going away. Right. And I thought, shoot, you know, I don't want to have this DAT recording on me all night. So I tried to catch up with them one way or another. Like, no, it's not going to happen. Like he's now he's on his bus, he's gone. And your bus is here and you've got to go back to there. It was right. a mess. The next day I came right up to him, had it on me the whole time. I even kept it in my bunk that night. I walked up to him as soon as he got sound check. And I said, here, here's the after show from last night. It's been warm the whole time I've had it. Hmm. And, um, and he said, yeah, right. How many copies did you make? And I said, I didn't make any copies. And so he said, would you put that in writing? And I said, sure. He said, put it in writing and sign it. And so I went back to my soundboard and I was a little pissed off. And I wrote the most ridiculous, you know, I, Scotty Pikulski of sound, mind and body, do solemnly swear. It was like the, the Boy Scout oath. And then I added on every bit of Latin that I could and make it like a lawyer that this was in my possession the whole time. I made no copies da, 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 and signed it and walked up and gave it to him. And he just tore it in half. 
<laughs> he got up and just went, shh, I saw him as he walked away. Like, wow. You, you had to be a little, you know, I, I think part of that is part of that attitude that I had as a young man with this house paid off at the time and nothing to lose. I could be more of a gunslinger, right? So I, I had a little more attitude, not uh, certainly humility. I've always had a lot of that, but it was, I didn't mind giving Prince a little bit of crap because it, that that's just ridiculous to um, the person that is in the charge of um, keeping your, what is dear to you safe. Mm-hmm. You'd think that that person would have, you, you would have that, they would have that trust. And I felt a little bit uh, affronted by that, but um, I didn't take it personally. It, it wasn't personal. It was just fun, more fun than anything. But um, no, he never asked me to release anything live or anything, leak anything like that. Yeah. That wasn't, that wasn't ever asked. Later on, I would be given stuff, but that's when you had the websites and other stuff to do uh, that. I see. That's why I was just like, I was just trying to think like, why, like where would you be able to do that at that time? Uh, but yeah, and then someone had this question: If you were mm-hmm. part of the sound for thirty-one twenty-one, and then the before the Super Bowl and the show before the Super Bowl in Florida. No, I didn't do the Super Bowl. I was with another artist at the time. I don't think I did. I didn't do anything on thirty-one twenty. What year was thirty-one twenty-one? Two thousand six through two thousand seven. Okay, so I was gone. I was already off with another artist, um, and. Uh, although he did fly me out, he was having trouble with the sound in in his residency in Las Vegas. So I got flown out there to listen to the show and and um, talk with him afterward and then go out party a little bit afterward and just tell him what I thought of the mix and and uh, what could be improved and and um, I've always been pretty pretty easygoing on sound engineers. I have a lot in common with a lot more in common with sound engineers. So I've never felt that sort of competition. I think maybe early in my career I did, but, um, but uh, so I, I, I said, Hey, we just change these few things and, and you'll be, you'll be fine. And that was right in the middle of his run in Vegas. Right. And Dave, when brought up about the boxes and the vault and stuff, he adds that they were in a DAT box with the sequential dates with the signature that I received them when they sent the masters back to Paisley park. Prince had a copy before I started and they were put into show boxes. So just to give okay. a little bit more of an, of an added bonus onto it, copy of show DATs. So, you know, this yeah, is, well, a- I mean, well, Dave, Dave is the way Dave has to handle, um, uh, studio, the way Dave ran his studio career is that he, he is a real pro. So he knows how to catalog work. He's the, the, the chief curator of all the Miles Davis uh, material. He works with um, um, preservation and he's, uh, he's a, a, a natural choice for, for taking over that role at Paisley Park. He was really in good shape when Paul Dave was there. And uh, Dave, I want to add this in. Scotty, thank you for helping me retire the old Paragon mixer. Oh, man. I never wanted to see that. You know, that that's funny because it was that, um, we were going to go do a show. We would rehearse this with what doctor is talking about here is there was an old mixing desk for live use called the Paragon. I think it was Paragon two, if I remember right, big old boat anchor, just heavy and broken all the time. And nobody knew how to fix it. It was just channels were out. Things wouldn't work and really in bad shape. And we were going to go do an after show once. And Prince and I got in a big fight 
what I think is a big fight about it because he, and it was around that era, it was around the one night alone um, era where he, he said, oh, we're going to, uh, I, someone came up to me and said, Hey, we're going to Atlanta to do an after show. I mean, to do a, to do a show at a theater at the Fox. And I said, well, with what gear? And they said, we're just going to take all the gear from rehearsal here. Well, not the soundboard, not the PA. Like, yeah, we're taking all this. You can't cover the, you can't cover the Fox theater with the PA we had. And you certainly, I didn't want to take this piece of junk on the road. It worked at rehearsal and it, but it was not a professional, it wasn't roadworthy anymore. There wasn't even a case for it. So when Prince walked in, I kind of cornered him. I just said, Hey man. And he walked over and I said, um, I don't think we should use this soundboard. We, sh we shouldn't take this or the PA to Atlanta. This is not going to, it's not going to work. And he said, it's fine. It's cool. We'll, ro we'll roll with it. I remember him saying, we'll roll with it. Cause I said, well, I, I, man, I can't roll with it because it's, it's ultimately, it's my job to, to do it out there. I said, I, I, I'm not cool with this. And the argument was that I said, he said, what's wrong with this desk? This desk is on a lot of shows. And I said, yeah, nothing wrong with the desk other than it's got one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. But if you want to take that risk, I said, just, just know this. There's a, there's a woman in Atlanta and you and I have never met her. She just learned about the show. She's her phone cord is still swinging because she just got tickets for the show for Saturday night. And I'm the only one in this conversation that's going to admit that she's going to have, it's going to sound really shitty where she is. And I, I won't do that to her. Neither should you, man. He had a look on his face. Like I'd never, I mean, it was one of those moments where I just thought, well, that was nice. That was a good career with him because his face just boiled over. And he said, and he wasn't swearing at this time. He said, get a pen and paper and get in my effing office. And he spun around and walked away. And I said, oh, that, well, that was it. And so I, I went to the person that gave me the news that we were doing a show. I said, you got to come with me. And he said, I'm not coming with you. I said, oh, man. So I went in his office and we argued about it. Um, he tried to get me to pay the bill for the soundboard and the PA. And I said, I, I don't have enough commas to pay for that gear. And he said, oh, I see when it's your money. You don't have enough money, but it's my man. I said, yeah, but it's not my show. It's not my career. I just want to do a good job and, and be fair to all the fans. And right. um, I think what infuriated him the most was that I suddenly, just for a second, got closer to his fans, stood up more for his fans than he did. That's exactly what it was. Because when I said, I'm, I, I'm not going to do that to her and neither should you, that's really infuriated him. But you know what? Guess guess who had a shiny new rental soundboard and a great PA for the show? It's so sometimes you had to, it's not flexing. It's just standing up for what you know is the right thing. And if it came down to it, very few people, most people folded like origami when they got around Prince. And I never, I never suffered that. I, I had enough experience with them when I was in my drum tech days that I knew exactly how far I could push my point and, and make it resonant. So um, it would have been extra sweet if some if something from that show ended up on the the box set, but uh, unfortunately, I don't think it did. But uh, but it's right. good to stand up for yourself when you know you're right. Maybe in the future, a few people are asking asking this question, and just but they're wanting to know if he released some of his live recordings, like his bootlegs, the soundboard stuff, or whatever. If he accidentally leaked them or whatnot, what your thoughts are on that? No, um, first of all, I don't know. Secondly, I, I've talked about this before. There's only two ways that things get released. Either some, if you have a recorded tape 
or a um, digital recording or a recording of any kind and it gets out, it means that the engineer who had it did it or someone who's in charge of that tape once it gets out of their control did it. It's simple. Um, Prince had full access to all his material, all his life at all times. Did he release stuff by himself and leak it out there? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But um, but there right. certainly is a lot of stuff out there. I haven't really, I haven't tested the bootleg market. I don't know anything about that. Um, but um, I know that people would send me things. Hey, he said your name in a show. And I said, oh, cool. And I would get a clip of it. But it would always be from the crowd. But when you're talking about board mics, I mean, excuse me, board tapes, board right. recordings, that that points only to the engineer of record or it points to Prince or someone in the studio. It, that's it. Right. And people are just asking, we're like 20 minutes behind on the questions. Just no, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I'm going too long. I should be. We, we can do a lightning round if you want. I can nail it. I can actually look at that side of the screen and. Because I'd be behind, you'd probably be live. Someone like someone was asking, and I do feel eventually one day the January twenty first, two thousand sixteen music mm -hmm, mm -hmm. park shows they will be released. That's a gold mine that will be released in the future. It will eventually be released. Um, let's. What's They're very your smart. They're very smart. There, they know what they're doing. It's right. not quickly enough for us for for fans it's never going to be fast enough they could dump the whole vault out into a parking lot and say there you go and it's not enough for some people just know that they know what they're doing there they can't do everything at, you know at the prince controlled his own pace right mm -hmm. prince is gone so someone else is controlling the pace they have to have a business plan and they they're doing it the right way they're unfolding it in the right way i think there's a there's a reason it's a total gold mine with that and it's worth a lot more than probably what's being offered right now is all I think of that. There's so much out there, you know, that he wouldn't release Montreux because the money wasn't right. You know, and those shows that those got mm -hmm. out there, but he wasn't mm -hmm. released, you know, that's what it comes down to. Someone wants to know what was your, what's your favorite console to use? Uh, it's changed over the years. I do like analog consoles as many <clears throat> Prince and I had at least a, I don't know, a dozen, discussions on and disagreements on on analog versus digital um right now i like yamaha i've always liked yamaha consoles especially the newer ones the later ones uh in the last seven eight ten years they've been they're really musical um in the old days it was midas consoles and this will turn off some of the viewers and listeners because they don't know what i'm talking about but but um prince always wanted analog he wanted the rich warmth he wanted all the faders. He wanted the input gain structure really hot, almost distorting. He wanted everything in the red. And that works for some things, but it doesn't work for everything. So knowing that I, the weakest link in the chain is the loudest part of the show, or I should have said that conversely, the loudest part of the show is the weakest link in the chain. I have to plan for that So um, in recording. So in doing that, I, I've made my transition. Matter of fact, I had a really gutsy move it, I, I made the transfer in the middle of the One Night Alone Live tour to a digital console. That is That was a crazy move. That was reckless. That's like getting drunk and driving on Highway 1, you know, in a, in a sports car with no seatbelt on. That's how crazy that was. I had, I had everything going well. I had this analog console. We did U.S. and Canada, I think. And then in the 10-day break, I said, oh, screw it. I'm going to switch desks because I can get a digital desk now. The reason I wanted to get a digital desk 
and, and get it more up to date is because Prince's material is really precise. And I, I was super busy um, getting echoes and things like that right and reverbs so that they were super precise because his material, the, the fans want to hear it the way it sounded on the record. And a digital console allowed me to recall songs. And the setting was such that it would sound it, half of my, oh, you know, administrative work on changing things and looking like a puppet, you know, back there, really busy. I could spend more time listening by recalling songs as they as they sounded. Um, when he would do Pop Life, there were certain songs, a uh, family name, when he would do songs that are really intensely heavy on effects. Um, I had to really haul the mail to get them to happen on an analog desk. When I went to Yamaha, when I started using Yamaha consoles, I could recall everything. And I have live, I still to this day have all my libraries of effects that I used for him hmm. and every artist. And I can save shows. So he could call me like he did and say, can we go do, you know, St. Bart's on New Year's Eve 2015, uh, 2016, you know, we did it on the show on January 1st. I can say, sure. And I had written the show on my laptop a couple of days before. I flew down there, loaded it into the desk, and it was ready to use. So um, I knew for him that would be a good thing ultimately. Right. That is a long answer to just say Yamaha. Next time I'm just going to go, Yamaha. Someone brought up, <laughs> we, we forgot, I forgot, that the 21 Nights uh, CD that came with the book was live was a live show as well. So he did release another thing, not as a CD release, but with the book. But yes, it, there was something else released. Was that so? Was that the twenty one? Was that cut in the in London at the twenty one yeah. nights? Okay, I wonder if that was maybe that was. Well, that's props to the. It, did he release the the board mix or was that multi tracked and recorded? I would think they would have multi tracked that. It was a residency of sorts, right? I believe so. And someone was asking if you were the one that. Uh, Mixed the tracks yeah. on night CD. Obviously, if you're answering it like that, you weren't. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't have anything. I was asked. They had a, they had a panicky moment early in that, uh, in that run. I know that they changed out a lot of stuff, and they there was a lot of panic. And I was called to come in and do stuff, and I couldn't make it because I was already I was touring with someone else. But, um, and that brings the question. Some asked me, why weren't you there always? when you started to mix them in 2000, why didn't you mix everything from then till, till 2016 or till his, till his death? And the answer is, and I've given before is that he had different flavors. He had different things he wanted to feel. Sometimes he would, he would feel like Ida playing bass. Sometimes he wanted Rhonda. Sometimes he wanted mono, all great bass players, all different. And sometimes he just didn't want to see faces that he had seen before. And there were times that he didn't want to see me there. And there were times that I, someone would call me and say, hey, I'm mixing prints. And I'd say, oh, well, I'm just sitting at home. I'm between tours. I've got you know eight weeks off. And I would wonder, oh, why didn't he call? But he just sometimes wanted different a different flavor. He wanted different things. That's why he rotated band members so often. Right. Someone had this question. They go, Scotty, you want to tell him about the DAT you had after a show that made you sweat? That was the one. That was the one that made me sweat. That was the that was the the um, the world leaving the New York thing with me run, literally running down the street with my backpack on and holding this dat in the air, going, "Oh no, I know what's going to happen." I could already forecast that he was going to be mad about that, and and think I did something shifty. Right. Now someone's asking for the musicology um, stream that was shown in the movie theaters. 
where did you do the sound for that? Yes. Yeah, that was pretty fearless of Prince because it wasn't that early in the tour. I think that was, yeah, like the fourth date in. Yeah, that, which is crazy because oh, you would think that I fourth date in, I should be locked in on the sound. Um, I, I don't. Re I've never seen that show. I've never. Um, I've never seen or heard that show. Um, someone tried to send it to me, but something was kind of funky, and I think it came out in mono, and it was weird. But so, but. I, so I could stream it off Dropbox or something. I went, I, I can't, I can't even listen to this. Um, but I would be interested to hear that. I would actually be interested to hear that show and see how it changed from, from that show to the Vegas DVD. Cause that was the same setup that I had. And in that tour, he would add up stuff. I wish that more of the closer to the end of that tour, there would be more footage. We know about the palace Hills or Auburn. Yeah, Auburn Hills. Yeah. Uh, not being released and being shot, but hopefully we'll see that. Someone had this, Ken has this question. Did you ever get goosebumps during a particularly amazing live show or studio moment? All the time. I I cried almost every night in Purple Rain. Almost almost without exception, I would cry during Purple Rain. Because there's something overwhelming. You know, after all, there's I'm supposed to be representing what the fans would want to hear. So the my crew and I would work very hard to make all every seat in every venue sort of equal, you know, in sound. Try and get them low end and high end, and you know, make it sound good. And then from there on, it's just me mixing as if I want to hear it. So I think I've had the good fortune of always sort of mixing it as a fan. I've wanted to be a fan of that. Now there were tours and artists with whom I worked that I wasn't a fan of their work particularly, but I did a good job because I still put that hat on and, and mix like a fan and mix it how they wanted to hear it or how I was asked to mix it. But um, with, if, as far as emotive content, Prince had tons of stuff. Um, free used to get me all the time. The song free. I, I was the, the chord changes, how that sort of walks down. Um, it's a really lonely song and it's, it's kind of hopeful, but it's, I don't even know what the lyrical con I'd have to think about the lyrical content of it, but it's um, that one would always just, I think the movement of the music really would get, I would get overwhelmed. Purple rain. There were many, many times that I cried. I, I've said it before, but it's true. I would um, with Prince when he was jamming, I had to watch the stage. I had to be watching the stage because he would give visual cues. And I have to know what to turn up and what to turn down. Right. Right. Um, with, when he would do ballads or long songs, I could look down. And typically I prefer mixing when I look down at my console. I look down and I'm kind of keeping everything in control there. And, and I'm listening so that I'm not caught up in the visual. I'm listening. But Purple Rain, I didn't have to. I knew when all the breaks were and I knew what to do. Um, I was looking down. In Purple Rain, I would always look down. And I would see. I can't tell you how many times I remember teardrops hitting the, you know, hitting the uh, desk. They would just drop onto the desk because that was really an emotional thing. The, the time I cried hardest listening to Purple Rain was when the revolution after his death um, contacted me. We got set for the tour and the whole week, Wendy didn't want to, the whole week or 10 days we rehearsed, um, Wendy kept putting off doing Purple Rain. She kept coming up with, oh, it's dinner time or we got to go or it's, we'll try it tomorrow. And I think they weren't ready to play it. The band was sort of not ready. The first time they played it, I realized that it was the first time that I was mixing it, that he wasn't playing it. And that was pretty, that was kind of overwhelming. And um, that was really, really hard because I knew that it was going to be different from then on. So yeah, tons of emotion, elation, 
heartbreak, um, lots of things. Wow, that is tough. That is a tough one. Um, all, excuse me. All the one night alone sound checks. Did did you record those? No, uh, almost none. Only when Prince wanted me to record, where he would say, "Scotty," and I would look up at him, and he would be playing usually keyboards, but and he would go like that. So I would start to record and um he'd be over at his keyboard setup on stage left and um that at the end of, her, of of the sound check then i would of course turn the dad in the digital audio tape in um all the fans in uh interaction with the uh, mpg music club that was really special and people would ask him he at first he didn't he just played a few songs and they would leave and and Sam probably remembers this way better than I do because he was up there for all that um, in front of the stage or side of stage. And at one point, a few shows in, a few sound checks in with the music club, I said, "Hey, um, Prince, do you want me to you want me to put a mic in the crowd mm -hmm. so that you can hear the questions better?" Because he had the in-ear monitors in, he would have to take it out to hear the question. And he's right. like, "No, it's cool. You know, I, I don't need that." And I said, well, do you want me to record the sound checks in tournament? He said, no, I don't want any of this recorded. He specifically didn't want anything recorded. Um, mm -hmm. And as I said to Andrea, um, it, it's <clears throat> Swenson, it's something is really special about that because you as a fan, you were at those sound checks, right? And that that's between you and Prince. Then it becomes this personal moment between a fan and, and their artist. And, and, um, being a technician and working with Prince <clears throat> and technically for him, but cause I was being paid, but working with him, um, I had a different relationship than his fans did. His fans had a, in, in a lot of ways, they were more personal to him. Uh, and he took them more personally than he did anyone that worked with him. As he said, your friends aren't on the payroll. You know, you don't, I, I, I disagree with that. I think he had plenty of friends on the payroll, but in, in, or people with whom he was friendly over the years. Right. But um, but I get his point. His point is that, um, and my point is that his fans are really special, and I'm glad that he didn't want to record any of those because I wouldn't want to hear that now. I wouldn't want to hear someone asking him a question about their life and how it pertains and what he thinks. And I mean, he would very often get down and sit on the stairs, coming out to the crowd, and they would all sort of huddle around, and the fans were so cool, and he would just sit and they would talk, and I I'd be like, well doors are in 20 minutes and he hasn't played a song and he's been talking with him for an hour. So whatever happened up there is between them. And I think that's rich. I think that's beautiful. Right. Totally. It makes sense. <clears throat> uh, Caitlin, I have this question for the layman's. Can you explain why he preferred analog? Um, because he said it puts electricity through all the gear and that goes from um, that goes from microphones and guitars and keyboards and some things have made the transfer over the years a little bit easier, like keyboards. When you start hearing plugged in keyboards with different settings, that's a no brainer. You're not going to carry a Rhodes or a, a Leslie or a Wurlitzer on tour. It's too much to do. So keyboards came along and he didn't care that those were digital. Um, sound, he always wanted, he said, I want to run electricity through the desk. Well, you can't do that with digital because it's not elect. It's not, you're not running electricity. You're not heating anything up, so to speak. So he preferred the warm song. And when he and I were kind of arguing in, or he was trying to argue with me in Australia before I left him, 
I walked out on him. He he said, "It's you got to make it like Muscle Shoals, Scotty, James Brown. Go back and listen to some of those recordings. Put you know put everything into the desk and then restrict the output a little bit." But he said that in one breath. The next breath, he was saying, "Put all the faders all the way up, including the output fader." Well, that doesn't work on an intimate piano show. So I had to sort of go, "Okay, get fired today." or make this work and do it my way and kind of get it. So I always had to play that balancing act. He loved analog. His Dave will tell you his recording stuff was analog, but even Dave Hampton and his uh, crew of engineers, they, they made a transfer into recording in a digital format on a digital audio workstation. So he, you have to go with the times. He tried to almost bully me into doing it, but I never gave in. I always told him, Hey, you know what I did? I told him in 2000, on the one night alone tour, he said, you change desks or you change consoles. And I said, yeah. And he said, is this a computer? And I said, well, kind of, I mean, it, it can remember what I've done from night to night. And um, he, he um, said, "Why? what was wrong with the other one? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm not going to tell you what guitar to play. I wouldn't tell you what guitar to play on what song. I said, this is my instrument. So I sort of stood up for using the instrument that made me get the most music out of his music. So. He never gave me too much shit about it, but he, he certainly did others because people that were there before me and especially after me, they, they would call me. Sometimes they would call me and say, Hey man, like he's got all my faders almost all the way down on the bottom because the input is so hot on top. And I said, well, okay, you already lost. Like you gave in, didn't you? And he said, yeah, I, I didn't know what to do. He told me to do this and he started pushing faders. Well, I'm very proud that in all the years I mixed prints, Never once, ever, did he ever touch a fader on my console. That's a, to me, that only me, that makes a big difference. It means he respected what I did. Even though Afshin took some great photos and, and Prince through Afshin gave them to me eventually um, of Prince at my desk with me. And he's just looking at me working. You know, he didn't, he wasn't futzing around. Um, we had a good charade that Prince and I would do on musicology when the opening act would be playing the time or um, uh, uh, Nick Acosta or somebody would be opening up in the arenas, well, Prince would make an appearance at front of house. He would just show up. And if I were mixing Nick Acosta, we'll say, um, we, Prince and I had this little charade. People would get excited. They'd see Prince at the soundboard and he'd want to act like he was doing something. So I would move over and then he would keep busy. You know, he would be at the soundboard going like this and acting like he was turning knobs. And then, and of course, I was there backing him up going, yeah, yeah, man, yeah, yeah. So it was this little show that I had going on. He just wanted to show people, I'm in control. I'm actually making adjustments to what's going on. I'm going to leave. And, and he would just pat me on the back and then go leave the riser. And I go, yeah, man. But his fingers were inches away from the console. It was just these. But that was all part of the Prince experience, you know, he, the, the exerted control and showing that he was – he, he was giving the fans that had not great seats or less great seats, not as close. He showed up before the concert so that all of them on that side could go. We saw him before anybody. We, you know, we were, we were right by him. He, what? He came out for the opening act. Oh man. You know, so he was a master showman in that sense too. Right. Um, another question we have is, when you say that's what fans want to hear, did you notice a difference in European crowds and USA crowds, crowds in the United States? For sure. Um, European crowds are um, louder. 
usually, and they're louder between songs for sure. Um, I don't, I'm not saying they're better fans. I'm saying that they, uh, you know, and you know, I've worked for the last two years in China for uh, Li Hong Wang, who's the biggest pop star in Chinese history, that in, in doing stadiums at the end of, from the very first show I did with Li Hong two years ago, I, I went, whoa, in between songs, they cheer for about three seconds and it stops dead silent in a stadium. And I've never heard that ever. And I would speak with Li Hong. Do you want me to try and have your reverb go a little longer? I mean, do I, he's like, no, that's Asian crowds. You know, that's Chinese crowd. You, that's just different. So yes, there are differences in general. I would say Europeans are a little more, um, there's a bigger, there's a higher fever pitch, right? Uh, you get over into Scotland and some of the parts of Europe that it's crazy. And, um, it's just different. It's not better or worse. It's just the fever pitch is a little bit different. Totally. Mm -hmm. I can see that and I can hear it in their emotions and so many different things. Yeah. Too. How many of the other artists you have worked with would help with the mixing in the middle of a show? In the middle of a show? Mm -hmm. uh, no, never, no one. That didn't occur. It's usually, and that's for a couple of reasons. Either they felt it was right or they didn't care or they didn't know where they didn't have as high a level of attention to detail. I, I um, certainly because Lee Hom, um is his own producer and he, he produces all his music, mixes it, releases it all. Um, he knows what he wants. So he'll give me uh, notes between shows. You know, when I'd be flying on the way back to the U S that week, I'd get notes on my phone. Then I would just make the changes. He pays, he pays super high attention to detail. Prince was on a daily basis or almost daily basis. Actually, um, one night alone live that that tour, um, there wasn't. Um, we were kind of doing our thing. We had more. We had we had a more easygoing relationship because it was jazz. It was there was more leeway in every way. Mm -hmm. I, um, and I and remember, I had no way of listening back to these things until Prince asked me in the studio and we sat in studio A listening. Um, typically, I can finish a show with Lee Holm or any other artist, or Gaga or whomever, and I can listen right back and go, oh, I need to do that. I need to change that or I need her to do this. And that's not the case with Prince. I could, I never heard anything after I, you know, right afterward. Prince would just tell me the next day, oh, you know, make sure on this song you do that or right. this or that. And But I couldn't reference it and listen to it. He wouldn't let me listen to it. So um, I got my chance during the show just like everyone else. Right. Did you record at the celebration in 2001 or 2002 at Paisley? Yes, for sure. They were all multi uh, 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 recorded on that recording, but I didn't do any multi-tracking of that. And those went literally from the uh, soundstage down the hall into Studio A or right into the vault. So those, but yeah, every, everything we did there, even, even when the other artists played, um, what were some of the artists that played there at 2001? Do you remember, Doc? You 2001, you had... Um, you had 2002. You had, yeah. 2002 was Nora Jones. Nora Jones, right. That's right. You had Victor Wooten. Mm -hmm. um, you also had Bernard Allison. So, you had some a very eclectic mix in 2000. Some, some of those folks had their own engineers, so I didn't mix them. 
Um, I remember Nora Jones had her own engineer, so I didn't mix them. And I don't know if he recorded her. Um, anyone I mixed, I recorded, including Prince. And then I would bring the dats right to the uh, right to Studio A for him to listen to later. So yeah, everything I mixed, I recorded. As a matter of fact, I can't remember one time that I didn't record what I mixed for Prince. Jackie Thompson is saying hi. Just in hey, case. Jackie. And people are asking for you to uh, speak in in Prince in Prince's oh, man. You're getting some of those requests. Um, now they're puppeteers, are they? Um, he uh, he. I can't even get down as low. I'm having a little trouble with my voice today. That's why I keep sipping on, which I, what I wish was a gin and tonic, just water. But um, but. Uh, he, what people don't realize about Prince's voice, or they might realize it, Maxwell has this exact same quality. Um, they have these super clean falsettos. I'll put Maxwell in the same category as Prince. He's an incredible vocalist. Super clean falsettos, beautiful, bright, clean, just no dirt at all. And then their speaking voices are down and dirty. Maxwell talks like this. What's up, Scotty? Oh, right, right. And you'd go, there's no way that guy in a million years is going to be able to sing a, a super breathy falsetto aspirated tone. And he can. And Prince, um, no, even when I do my Prince impersonation, and it's more just because I hear his voice in my head and I hear how it sounded, so I imitate him when I do it. Um, mm -hmm. I, even tonight, I can't get as low as he really was. I don't know what note he hung on, but he would... Um, uh, it was always really low and you had to come up with, I think I had about six different ways of saying, excuse me, like I, or, or sorry, man. And there you had to sort of apologize for not being able to hear it. But once you locked in, you could, you could hear it, but it was very low and he always kept that hand by the face. That's, I don't think my impersonation is as good as Fred Armisen's though. Fred's is, Fred's is pretty good. There's some pretty good Prince voices out there, but. We're just going to have to get Fred on one day just for that and then get you I on. I think he would love to be on. He's Fred's a huge, there, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of people really love Prince. They're, they're, um, he's, he's, the, he's part of the, he's part of the fabric of mm. who we are as people, especially as I wrote in the liner notes on the, on the, on the one note live, one night alone live uh, set is <clears throat> he supplied the soundtrack of my life as a teenager in Minneapolis. Right. That's who I listened to. That's who, that's with whom I was familiar. I, you'd have no idea that people like Maya, like Fred, the people, uh, Maya Rudolph and Fred Armisen and people, Questlove, you know, they're, they're, they, they become so integrated with their, who they are as people because they're speaking about a time at, that makes reference to who they were as people. So it becomes interwoven with, who they are and who they're becoming as people. It's really important. And right. um, so Prince is that kind of artist where his depth and breadth and of, of reach is so deep that it becomes uh, part of the fabric. Mm -hmm. And that's that's really saying something about the the level of his songs and the level of songwriting depth. Right. You know, and there was a period, I have to say, that after 2012, 13, 14, when I wasn't working with him as much, getting called for special events, things like that, where I look back and I thought, oh, I've worked with a lot of big artists. Yeah, Prince was cool. You know, he was <clears throat> he was good. Didn't appreciate him for a certain period of time. I didn't have, it wasn't being bitter. I just didn't went, well, yeah, he's cool, but I'm 
mixing these people now. And they, boy, these are great. And these guys are great. Or Lee Holmes band in China. They're amazing musicians, best ever. And then I think back and I look back and I go, yeah, it was kind of cool. Um, but when I, when I look back at now in full retrospect, I can see what a special time it was and what a special time it was for this particular album that's coming out because it was, it was where he was saying what he wanted to say, not what he thought people, not what he thought people wanted to hear. He right. was really personal in this record. Right. One of the questions that we had sent in earlier over the past two days, Prince seemed to be very happy during this time in his life. Did you mm. sense that as well? Oh, sure. Yeah. We had a lot of fun. It was fun. The after shows were a good barometer, a good gauge by which to judge how he was feeling about things. And we had a lot of fun that you had a great band, great personalities, great mix. It was like Gilligan's Island, you know, you had one character had every sort of different role. There was a Mr. Howell and a ginger and a, you know, everybody had a role on that show. They had the balance, right? That band was really a good band with him. Um, something that I don't think you saw um, previous other than the revolution. You know, the revolution had such a <clears throat> perfect balance that that was a true band. Um, he, he had a, he had a band in, in this uh, Renato Ronda and John, and that was a, and, and then you add Maceo, Candy, um, Greg Boyer, Najee, Mike Phillips. You add in the players that could kind of come in and out and you had sort of the right balance of everybody. We had a great time. That was a great tour. A lot of fun after shows, um, a lot of good food and, and laughing and, and partying. And it was, and it was good because Prince was getting out what he wanted to get out to. He wasn't just pumping out the hits and and cash and checks he was it was a good period for him when in the studio did you put a lot of effects on the certain instruments before you started to record or did you do vocal processing during the mixing did you record his lead vocal with or without reverb for certain effects or certain okay. so they're probably mistaking that i was in the studio at all with prince you were doing this um i'm doing everything live and everything you've heard that's come out including the you know, everything in here, the, everything in the, the One Night Alone Live, the regular set list, the after shows and the Las Vegas DVD um, is was as it was coming out of the speakers. And the, the tough part about that is that I'm mixing for a room full of people. I shouldn't really care about how the recording is going to come out. Right. Right. You can either do it one of two ways. You can try and say, man, this artist listens to my recordings every night. I better, I better make sure the recordings are good and screw the room if I have to. Right. Um, or you can say, hey, listen, I have a colleague of mine back then. I don't, I'm not in touch with him anymore. He said, I said, he did show me a certain way he did something. I said, well, doesn't that make your recording sound really thin when you do it that way? And he said, rather cavalierly, he said, I'm a live engineer. I'm not a studio engineer. So the most, um, um, I'm a pretty, I have a lot of humility, but the most um, feather fluffing I did um, was when the box set came out, I sent him a copy and remembering what he said, I wrote um, live engineer and not a studio engineer. Well, that makes one of us. And so I gave him this box set and he called me up right away when he got, it. he said, oh, that was a good one, Scotty. You got me on that one because you have to think of it like a studio. If you think of, if I think of mixing it like it should sound in a room and 
those recordings will come out good. And I have to say that <clears throat> it, it took me a while in my career to find how to work with musicians because usually the stumbling block is how the musician is presenting their stuff. Either their guitar is too loud, things are too soft, they're not being intentional, the musical director is not on their game. Well, the good thing you had about that I had in my corner was my corner man was Prince. And not a lot of people can say that. When I went back and held the ropes, the person taking my mouthpiece out and giving me this spit bucket was Prince. And he would say, okay, go talk to Maceo or go listen to can't listen how good Candy's tone is. Go listen to your sax and, you know, make the, and so I would, that would, Prince was my corner man. And that's a huge advantage for me. So right. I've been able to take a lot of those, um, uh, lessons that I learned and encouragement I got from him and be able to give it to all these artists and, and ultimately give it to fans because they're the ones that, 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 that end up, you know, being able to, um, I work with a band called the fray. I don't know if you remember them and, um, guys from Colorado and they, um, you know, I, they would say, what, man, these sound like records. Like, how do you make it sound like that? And I said, Hey, it's just stuff I learned in the past. And of course it was a lot of cutting my teeth on, on print shows and, and making sure I really worked well with musicians and said, I need you to do this or can you do that without telling them what to do, just saying, can you, can we work together on this? Can you turn yourself down? I'll turn you up more out front. And it sounds better in the house. It sounds better on the recording later right. on and things like that. <clears throat> now, someone had a question. Were you doing Sound It All um, at Paisley Park in 2015? Mm, I don't. I don't think it was you. I don't think it was me. Um no, because I, I got called November 9th, if I remember right. Kirk called me in, in early November, and so I went back there and did November and December, of course, and then the, the January shows. and the Right. Uh, so I think my first show back was St. Bart's. Okay. New so, Year's Eve show. show. Yeah. So there were a lot of shows that I didn't – I mean, a lot of shows over those years I didn't do, but I was always sort of in the mix for, for one-offs or parties or – I come out to one of the houses in LA and do special parties. And, and then also in a consulting way, I was sort of brought out by Prince to listen to other engineers mixes and say, okay, yeah, they're doing good. You know, they're doing well. They, they need, might want to think about this or, or let me EQ the PA and just we'll start there and save their settings and try mine, see which one you like better, things like that. So I was always sort of in the background when I wasn't there. And Dave brought up that he would do his own vocals and send the engineers out of the room when he'd be recording his vocals. Oh, right. I did hear that. Yeah. So yeah. he probably didn't want to emote. Um, my guess is that he wouldn't, it wasn't just a, a dripping love ballad. It was probably all things. He didn't want engineers in the room because he would cut them right at the, and Dave can correct me, but I think he would cut them. That, that mic was always at the, at the desk. He would, he would record at the console. So um, not optimal, of course. You'd want to be in a vocal booth with more controls where you can do stuff with it later. But Prince didn't do it that way. He did it his way, and it, and it ended up being great. So, yeah, he would kick people out when he had to cut his vocal. Okay. Someone was asking this. I didn't see Dave answer it. Um, for the shows at Paisley Park, were those multi-track back to the studio or just TAT at the console? Everything, everything was um, was um, DAT was digital audio tape for me. Um, the the only shows I multi-tracked with Prince were um, were the um, shows at uh, 
at at Paisley. I mean the uh, piano and microphone, piano and a microphone show. Now, someone uh, asked what, and this was a question we had beforehand that I emailed you. What was the most challenging aspect of your job? Hmm. With Prince, it was um, the most challenging aspect. I have a couple answers. One would be um, getting the responsibility. I think the responsibility, I, I was held to a super high level of accountability. If the drums didn't sound good, Prince wouldn't go to the drum tech and he wouldn't go to John or Cora or he would come to me and say, why are the drums like this? And I'd say, <laughs> and he'd say, oh, come on now. And so I would have to sort of, you know, people that happened way more than people know than anyone knows. I was made, I was culpable for that. So the responsibility and weight of having all the sound and all the instruments sound be on my shoulders and responsible. The pressure of having every show that we did able to be released, that was a, that was a lot of pressure. Because he said everything we do ought to be able to be released. And I said, okay. I wasn't worried about it, but I just knew. I mean, there were times that I didn't have my DAT recorder with me. And I had to, I knew that 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 when we went to do an after show, I said, man, you guys need to come up with a DAT recorder. And every time the local sound company, one would show up and there were somewhere where we had the cables sitting there waiting and Prince was about to come on stage and I was going, this is going to be the time. And sure enough, a guy went, here you go, man. <laughs> and I went, plop, 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 plop. And we went and I got the whole after show on recording. And I thought, man, that is it. I'm never doing that again. So then I bought an extra recorder, a smaller one that I could always keep on me. So there's a lot of pressure in that way. Um, what was the most difficult aspect? It was the pressure. It was the pressure. It's a tremendous amount of pressure. But people tend to give Prince more credit or blame, I should say, for putting pressure on people. I think the it was the pressure that we put on ourselves because we wanted most people wanted to impress him. Most people wanted to do well for him. Um, you knew if you were doing it at that level and he approved of it, that you were doing it at the highest level you could ever do. And so that was something that I was actually keen. I was, it was something of which I was keenly aware, even in the moment. There were times I was super tired. Doc, you understand, because you were at a lot of these shows and then after shows, you would just be dog tired. And, and back then we would be in clubs full of smoke and I'd have a bad attitude because I had been there since 8 a.m. loading in. And, and it was already 2.30 or 3 a.m. And we were about to start an after show. And I knew I had to load in tomorrow in a different city at 8 a.m. And I would just be like, ah, just grumpy. And, but I was still aware and full of smoke. And then I couldn't get a drink because the guy who was going to go get me a gin and tonic never showed back up. And he was, had his girl. And they, the local sound guy was partying with his girl. And I'm looking over there going, oh, man, I can't even get a drink. Um, and so it was... Of all that, I was still at least very aware of of the place in history where this would ultimately land. Sadly, um, you know, it, it happened sooner than I thought. Um, it happened how it was supposed to happen. Everything that has happened it happened exactly how it should have happened, and right. the way it happens. I don't. I have faith in that process, um, but um, I think we're on our we're all on our own narrative arc, and things are as they should be. Uh, and it's people, it's people coming to terms with those narrative arcs that are the real issue. But, um, but 
it, it was, I was aware, I was always aware at, at the seriousness uh, with which I took every, every show, every single show. I'm glad I never, um, I, I, there was an after show. It ended up on the, it ain't over show. There's something from LA, <clears throat> one of those after shows. Pretty sure it was one of the shows that is on there where for a minute, the horns were doing their a thing and it was just long jam. And I remember leaning back and sitting down on a bench, there was a bench behind me. I leaned back and I sat down for just a couple of seconds and I went, no man, don't. Like I remember thinking I have this record in my mind of not ever like leaning back and just, uh, you know, and just not doing something. And I, it was only a few seconds I jumped back up and I got back on the console, even though there wasn't much to do. And um, it was not letting your guard down for that amount of time with an artist that was that poor, at communication with his own crew. That was a big deal, the band and crew. We never knew, like, oh, he left the building. What do you mean? Oh, he left the building an hour ago. He's on his way to Signature to the airport. And I'm like, oh, man. Like, we just done, you guys want to wrap it up? Yeah, let's let's wrap it up. Okay, let's leave. And then we would leave because he was already headed out of town. And it, it wouldn't have taken much. I could do a class for artists and say, Please be better at communication. Just say, listen, you guys are doing great. I'm going to give you the rest of the day off. I got to jet out of town. Um, you know, it doesn't take much to do that. <clears throat> and it doesn't make you cooler if you don't do that. So um, uh, there are some artists, including the one, the guy I've been working with most recently, that are really good at communication and say, listen, I, need, I know you need your time and your space. It's just that Prince kind of felt that we were always had to be on guard and there was someone else ready to take your job if you didn't want to be there. Right. So, so he kind of used that to his advantage. And, um, but it, sometimes that brought out the best work in people. So I know I'm being here with here and there with this rambling answer, but sometimes being tired and being on the edge is right where the best stuff happens. You know, when you're really pushing it, this is, if I keep giving answers this long doc, it is going to be up all night with Scotty Baldwin. Don't worry. My, we're, we're, we're my getting... family's going to come pounding at the door. My, my wife and daughters were nice enough to leave for these couple hours. And, um, and I said, probably be two hours. And then like, so let me know when we hit 4 a.m. <laughs> Someone had this question. We're, we're wrapping it up just so these, these people know we're getting the last ones in and that your wife won't kill you. Um, did you know if there ever was consideration to include C note on this release since it's a series of sound checks from that's the a great that's a great question. I, I don't know anything about that. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, in all candor, I didn't know that C note existed until five a half dozen years ago. Where I where somebody said, Hey, you know, you something about C-Note. And I said, I don't know what that is. They said, well, that's your sound check, the record of sound checks. Like, I don't know what that is. They said, no, it's, it's uh, Copenhagen, Nagoya, uh, Osaka, Tokyo, and, and the empty room. And I said, oh man, that's, that's genius. And then he put a, a hundred dollar bill on there. So um, he took sound checks from my console from those things. So it does prove that there were sound checks that that I ran, you know, that I recorded. But that those in those particular cities and those sound checks clearly it's a time that he said, Scotty. And then I looked at him and he nodded upward so that we had our communication down. 
<clears throat> and then I recorded those. And then he would leave and I would hand, he usually would come by the soundboard and I would hand him the DAF tape right there. So I'm, I was glad he came out with yet another, I made some other feather in, in the, in all of our caps that were part of that, that he wanted to have sound checks released, which is pretty cool. Right. Now this, I don't know if this will be the final question before we have you speak on whatever you want to speak on, including the booklet, but um, they're like, thank you for do th doing this. Could you elaborate on the overall atmosphere that was transpiring at Prince's Gala event on January 21st, 2016? And what was like mixing the sound of Free Yourself that was first performed live on that special night? Um, I wish that I knew that it was, we were all super tired. That was a, getting ready for that gala was a big deal. And for Kirk and Rick and, and Marone and, and the people to put that thing together in a short amount of time, Andrew even, there was a lot that went into that. And, um, and um, we were all on, on fumes, running on fumes then. Um, but the, what was what was energizing about it was when the fans came in, when they, when they finally came in and um, you could see that they knew I detected that they knew how special that night was going to be. Right. And so that was sort of energetic. Um, and um, Prince and I had been debating back and forth lightly about how best to mix it. He wanted to mix it with speakers in the corners. And I told him that doesn't work. That's really a bad idea. You, it's only good for one place in the room and that's right in the center. And as soon as you walk to one side of the room, you hear it from over there. And then you, and I actually showed him that. Kirk arranged for me to be able to show him that he's like, now it's coming from over there. And I said, right, you don't, I don't want to see you playing here and then hear you over here. It's too disconcerting. And, um, and then he said, well, did you see the Beatles show in Las Vegas? I said, yeah. He said, well, see, they had uh, speakers in the seats. It was great. And I said, yeah, that's not going to happen tomorrow. Like I, it's so it was sort of a wrestling match, but we ended up with something that he liked and um, that he was okay with the sound. And I really had the sound coming from everywhere <clears throat> in that room. And I had my effects ready and I was ready to go. And um, that show was done on a skeleton crew. I mean, I ran the smoke machine and, while someone opened the door and then I had to undo the, doing the smoke machine and run over and do the, and start mixing <clears throat> with that funky voice at the beginning. And, and, uh, so that 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 that's a long-winded way of getting back to the original question, which was the feeling of it was the feeling was special because of the fans. The people were in the room and they understood exactly what was going on. And as soon as all of us detected, because in the three-hour rehearsal that Prince and I had alone the night before there, we spent three hours. It was one of my uh, favorite days with Prince ever in our 26 years of working with it with one another. It was we laughed about talked about old musicians and bunkers and after shows and, and um, had, had laughs and, and talked about the show that was going to happen the next night. But even in the set list, I couldn't tell that he gave me, I couldn't tell that it was autobiographical. So for me, by the time he started playing the second or third song, I said, holy shit, I get it now. This is a story of his life. And so I knew how we all kind of knew quickly how special that was. Right. And so that, that I think was, it was very special. And again, I, I say that the people that 
eventually that will be released and I'm, I'm sure it will. And, and it's very, very special. And I'm very proud of being part of that. And to get thanked in that show was a big deal <clears throat> to, um, I know to Lisa and Wendy and myself and Kirk in the second show, that was right. um, a big deal because that, that meant he was really, um, he was really feeling every, every moment of those shows. Right. Chris James sent this through text. Ah, Chris James. Ask Scotty if he ever got into trouble after P listened to a board tape or something he did during the show. Okay. There was, um, there was, there were a couple of times that the Prince, one time he accused me of, of, of a board tape getting out. <clears throat> so I went down into, somebody said he wants to talk to you and A, he's pissed off. I went in studio A and he said, not releasing board tapes, huh? And I said, what, what are you talking about? And he hit play. And it sounded really fucking good. It sounded stereo. And it was, and I went, oh my God, like that's me. That's my mix. And it was playing. And then as soon as it stopped, you heard that the mic was right next to someone, that it was a live crowd mic. And it was like, woo, oh yeah, yeah, all right. You could hear those voices. And that never comes through a board tape. And so I said, wait, man, right there. That's, a, that's not a board tape. Listen, it's in the crowd. And he was embarrassed and he knew he was wrong. And he went over to the recorder, ejected the DAT. And it's hard to break open a DAT. You can break open a VHS cassette easy. Just put the little flap, right? He somehow broke a DAT open, like through sheer, maybe he just looked at it hard. But the, he got the DAT open and he started pulling the DAT, the tape out of it, you know, pulling it. And, and he said, oh, yeah. And I said, oh, okay, all right, man. Like I was waiting for the, sorry about that. But that was his apology, was like ripping this dad apart. Um, there was another time he accused me of putting a bunch of reverb. He said reverb on his guitar. And I said, no, man, I never put any. You do all the effects on, your, on the floor. I don't do anything like that. I didn't get to actually hear the tape that time. Um, but uh, uh, he listened. I said, listen to it and tell me I did anything to the guitar. I didn't. So clearly he listened to it because I got a handwritten note. <clears throat> Zachary from security. Um, called me over and said, hey, I got to show you something. And I said, cool. Can he talk? He said, no, he handed me this to show you. And he held the note out by the top and the bottom. And it said, it said, um, you were wrong. I, or, I was wrong. You were right. I'll never doubt your intentions again. And then he signed his name. And I, and I said, wait, let me see that. And I was reaching out to kind of snatch it away and keep it. And Zachary knew, so he was holding on. And he, we had this little pull and he went, well, and he tore it up in front of me. And I said, no, no. Like to get a written apology from Prince. I was right. wrong. You were right. I'll never doubt your intentions again. I said, oh man, that was, come on. That was gold. And um, so, uh, yeah, I had gotten Chris's, Chris may even know of a time extra that I got called in, called to the carpet for, for something. But um and I'm glad Chris is, is watching and listening. He's got, man, that guy has great ears. He's a great artist himself and his mixing is great. And he's one of these engineers that, you know, and Dave Hampton brought in his time too, brought in engineers that knew the music and they were ready and they were in fighting shape and they were ready to say, nope, bar 56, we got to try that again. We got to do this. And there's something in bar 88 that I didn't like. And like, wow, they, you know, when you, when you're on that level with Prince, you have to respond like that. Chris is one of those engineers that has great ears. I'm glad he's he's a part of tonight. Yes. 
Definitely. You guys, make sure to get the One Night Alone set and make sure to get the the CD DVD box set just for Scotty's notes alone. Yeah, and and one thing I want to say about that is it Correct. the way the artwork is, and I, I don't know if it was uh, the way Sam planned it on for the thing. Sometimes it can look like the death of cool was because there's no signature at the end. I'm I'm 99% sure Prince wrote that. I'm I'm positive he wrote that. Sam would know, but it looks like people have attributed that to me in the past because it says the death of cool. And then it's written in print speak, this whole kind of essay. And then on the next thing, it says courage over conformity. And then it has my essay, but sometimes people say, well, like Scotty said in death, you know, the death of cool. And I go, no, no, no. I know that was, there should have been like a page break there or something. Right. Um, so, so it um, Prince wrote, unless I get corrected by Sam or somebody, Prince wrote The Death of Cool. I wrote where it starts with courage over conformity and the Ralph Waldo Emerson quote. That's where I start writing. But yeah, I'm really proud of that. Very cool. And we're proud to have it. Glad. Man, Doc, it's 8.38 in LA. This is not up. This is up part of the night. Scotty Bathroom breaks or whatnot. If you if you want to go, we can go longer. Hey, I, just, I can go as long as you can. I would need bathroom breaks and then check that air conditioner out. <laughs> I don't want to sweat you out. We can, you know, we'll do this again. I, 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 um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to do it because <clears throat> when, when Prince left us, there's a void in understanding and the people um, I'm very serious when I say the people that because of his nature being cryptic and mm -hmm. silent, people are gra they're grabbing for, for understanding and placement and where to place all this. And it's important to get placement from where you can get it. And from the people who were studious and serious and not in it for themselves, um, there have been people that since his death have been in it for themselves. And they all we all know who they are. And there are people who are in it to, to um, help, um, uh, help the understanding of the fan. And, and I do it because the fans, I represented what fans heard in, in live venues for all those years. Right now, if I can shed, even, even if one person listens tonight or watches and says, oh, I didn't know that, that's cool, or that, that helps me with understanding that, then it's worth it. It's worth it just for that. So I'll always, I'll come on anytime you want. It, it can be up all night with Scotty Baldwin. We just have to string like six of them together to be up all night. I'm in my 50s, man. I, up all night is like, this is up all night for me. 10.30. They're watching in Belgium because of this, and it's it's 5.38 in the morning. They're going to get this. Time to go fishing. There you Come go. On. Right? I'll do this anytime. If, it, if the response is good and people like it, um, I'd be happy to do it anytime. Absolutely, because I keep wanting to do it. That's why I figured, like, for this album special and for other sure. stuff, we can do it when it hits different time periods. So we can just focus on this. Do take some questions from other eras, but mostly it's focused on this for the most part yeah. to be able to promote the release and promote, you know, everything that came along with it, you know? Yeah. And, and take a listen to, to Andrea's, uh, Andrea Swenson's yes. two part, um, uh, the, the, the estates, uh, podcast is really great. It's really well produced. Um, Andrea's awesome. I love her. And she, she, she has, she's, I'm really glad she's involved because she has such great placement with where all this should lie in the canon of his work. So I'm really, Absolutely. really proud of her as well. So yeah, make sure you don't miss that. 
I think through the current both parts right now, it's part one. They're about to have part two on Friday, but it is okay. on current if you guys want to check out both parts. Anything in closing, Scotty? Mr. Up All Night? I, I was just trying to pace myself out with my water so that so that I didn't like get to the end and was sipping and going, oh no, I made it. Then the air, like it's just, it's uh, the Va San Fernando Valley. Just ask Wendy and Lisa about that. Wendy's a little bit more in Studio City, so it's a little bit cooler by her. I'm more more inland, so it's ridiculous. So they have that air conditioner go out. Hey, it went back on. Maybe it wants us to go all night. Hey, that was Wendy doing that. Um, uh, you know, yeah, you, it just shows that everybody in LA needs to move. We're doing all this remotely anyway. The whole world is. So come on out. We want everybody to move out here. We'll get Fred move out here. Lisa, Wendy, get everybody, get Brown Mark up here. And he's got a new book out. Let's get everybody doing this from the Twin Cities. Let's just make Twin Cities the new the new Hollywood. Let's I do we should. During Part During months we can be here temperate yeah when it's more temperate we're just gonna well, have to deal with deal with uh hanging out at scotty's place to stay warm yeah we got room we got there a little go. uh thank you very much doc i appreciate all that you do and and your knowledge and your your encyclopedic uh memory for things i mean how many times have i called you to say hey when was that or what club was that and um I, I do that about every two years. I call Doc say, what what's the name of the club at which Prince and I were talking outside and we were right on the other side of the wall of all the people coming in. They didn't know we were there and it was a lattice fence and blah, blah, blah. And I described this thing and he said every time, I don't even remember what, what was it called? The name um, of that club, that club that Prince and I were talking on the other side of the wall after the tonight show performance. It was Dominic's Dominic's. Sorry, See, I can't remember it. Every every two years, I call you and say, "What club is that?" Cause somebody asked me. So, you're, I appreciate your knowledge and your understanding, and your your relationship with Prince is a big deal, and the the that you had the stamp of approval, and that he used you to, uh, you know, be part of of how he got message to 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 the people that mean the most, meant the most to him. So, I'll do right. this for you anytime, as long as people are interested. Absolutely, we're all at home. Definitely. I appreciate it. And I feel, you know, that I was chosen or whatnot, how I look at it, just very fortunate, very lucky. I never expected that. And it just turned into something else. And mm -hmm. I'm blessed to be talking with you. Blessed that I was part of uh, playing a part of a role. It's just, it's just hard to talk about sometimes. But of course, it's just been an amazing experience that the eight-year-old me would have never believed. And I'm sure kind of like yeah. you, you know, when you're doing sound engineering or you're being a drum tech, and then all of a sudden, this is the next level that you're doing is engineering for Prince. Yeah. You know, on that level. Yeah. I want to thank everybody for their questions as well. Sorry that we didn't get to all of them, but um, but uh, we'll do it again next time. And, and the, the fact that people show up and, and want to participate and observe is a big deal. I appreciate it. I'm very right. grateful for that. All right. Well, I think... Thank you guys so much. Again, make sure to subscribe on iTunes, on Stitcher, if you're not able to watch live and other stuff. I'll get this posted within a couple of days. Need to get some other ones done. If you guys want to donate, I'll put up the link, or you can go to drfunkamary.com, and you'll see a link on there. Um, that's it. Scotty, it's always a pleasure to talk Thank with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. We'll get both you and Dave on again, and then others good. on. Um, Looking forward to it. Cool.
Much love, everyone. Until next time, keep it funky. Okay, see you later. Peace.